friends and fellow Buffy lovers, and welcome to our podcast, where we discuss each episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer in detail, focusing on digging deep into the themes, metaphors, and foreshadowing. I'm Leah. I'm Sarah. I'm Tabby. And this is Becoming Buffy. Hi guys, welcome back to Becoming Buffy. Um, this episode is episode 18. I always think that passion is 18, but apparently killed by death is 18. <laughs> um, this is episode 18 of season two, Killed by Death. This is a fun one for me to analyze only because I think there's only like two or three episodes in the Buffy fandom that I've only seen once. Mm. And this is one of those episodes. And so... It was fun to watch because I was like, oh, like, I don't remember any of these interactions. I don't remember any of, like, these scenes. I remember small things. But specifically, the whole storyline with Buffy's mm-hmm. cousin had absolutely no remembrance of that. So it was really funny to watch this and be like, oh, there's a whole side to Buffy I don't even remember. Yeah. This episode, I feel like, is another one in season two that a lot of people are pretty divided on. I feel like a lot of people are like, oh, I love the horror feel of this. This is great. And then a lot of people are like, I just skipped this on my rewatch. Um, and I think it feels like it fin- kind of falls somewhere awkwardly in the season because of the fact that you just had passion right before. And then, you know, we're gearing up for the finale here in a couple of episodes. So I think it's it's a little bit awkward in where it's placed in the season. But I think there's also aspects that work very well for where it's at. See, I'd actually disagree. I think that this episode feels a lot better placed than an episode that we haven't seen yet which is go fish Mm. and i'll talk about that one when we get there but i feel like this episode makes a lot of sense because of where buffy's head and like mindset is right now and just like everyone is mourning and it's just kind of like an awkward period and it does feel very like horror ish because of like where everyone's mindset is um and so i don't know i think that where it's placed in the season is good I totally agree with Leah. I was about to say that um, without telling you the specific episodes in later seasons, but every time something kind of trauma-ish happens later on in seasons, there's an episode like this where Buffy has to go through it. I don't know how to explain it, but I'm really trying not to give away stuff. But I think that what is a little bit unnerving about this episode, and I've seen this in Doctor Who a, a few times too where they have episodes that are supposed to feel different and so they kind of make the filter a little bit more creepy like a little bit different like the tint is different i noticed it in this one's a little bit more like grayish like lifeless yeah i see what i think people mean and what i kind of mean when i say that i don't know that it's great placement is the theme is great the theme is excellent and like The fact that Buffy is like getting physically sick because she has so much on her and because she's wrestling through everything with Angel and Jenny's death. The difference is I think it is not a super great episode as far as story-wise. It very much is a villain of the week type thing, even though it does have Angelus in it a little bit. Um, But it isn't as much of a um, full invested storyline as like phases or like Lie to Me or The Dark Age or Halloween where they're just like – it's a great standalone on its own. I think this one like has one of the most terrifying villains we've seen yet. I think Derek Kinderstadt is utterly horrifying. 
And I think that it's great that Buffy's working through issues, but I think that it is kind of a lackluster episode, if that makes sense. I agree with you there. I don't know. I kind of disagree. I think that it's just an episode that went for a different tone and a different feeling. I don't, I, I don't know. I'm not explaining this well, mm-hmm. but um, there are other shows that do this. Actually, a lot of other shows. I couldn't even... I mean, Doctor Who is an example of one. I've been watching uh, like Pretty Little Liars or rewatching it, and it does this a few times where like they'll choose to have like one episode that pays homage to either like an old movie or an old show or like whatever, and it'll kind of base it off of that. And I definitely feel like this episode is kind of an homage to kind of like not super old, but like 90s and 80s horror movies. Um, and I kind of like it. Like, I don't personally like horror movies, but I will say, like, watching this, I I don't feel like the episode doesn't do a good job of what it's trying to go for. Yeah, well, and I mean, I think what you're going for is it feels a lot like season one. It feels a lot like season one in the way it's shot, even the music, a lot of the same riffs. It was actually a script that was meant for season one, too. So it's that's kind of a lot of why it feels a little bit um, kind of like – uh, horror-esque. I think season one was more classically horror. It kind of reminds me of Nightmares of Tad mm-hmm. because I think that we've only seen Buffy and or the gang in the hospital twice. And one of them was Nightmares and what was one of them was in this one. Um, but also the music was music I'd never heard in the show so far. I think it was like maybe like one-off music for this episode or maybe I just haven't really noticed it a ton, but it felt very like Leah said, classic horror, like, um, like shot, it's shot very much, I guess, yeah, just like classic horror, like a lot more like creepy, a lot more slow, a lot more build up rather than like the horror that's nowadays. Yeah. All right. So season two, episode 18, Killed by Death, written by Rob Dis Hotel and Dean Batali yet again, um, who they, we've talked about it before, but they wrote two or three season one episodes. I know they wrote um, Puppet Show and Never Kill a Boy on the First Date. They wrote The Dark Age in this uh, season and they one other one I can't remember, but also Killed by Death, um, directed by Darren Serafian and it aired March 3rd, 1998. So this episode... Um, first of all, the title is taken from Motorhead's song of the same name, but I also, it kind of reminds me of the Emily Dickinson poem because I could not stop for death. He kindly stopped for me, which is hilarious because Robin Dean also wrote, you know, never kill a boy on the first day and Owen loved Emily Dickinson. <laughs> so I was kind of like, huh, I wonder if like Robin, either Rob or Dean likes Emily Dickinson because they keep referencing it. Um, So there was actually a seven-week hiatus of the show following this episode. Could you imagine? Like, you have passion, you have this, and then seven weeks until you have the last four episodes of the season. Was was there a reason for the hiatus? I think it's probably like where it fell. Because if this was March 3rd, then you would have taken like a seven week break maybe for spring i don't know i don't know what it was at that point but that's a really weird time it would have made sense yeah. if it would, like aired like december because then you would have had like all of december and then maybe like all of january so that would have left you with like kind of like a break for like you know holidays but that's a really weird time to take a hiatus that is really it's super weird i'm not sure exactly why but I mean, okay, so like, let's be fair, there's never really a great time to take a break from Buffy because there's always some sort of a cliffhanger that you're like, ah, I have to know more. But this in particular, I feel like is like not particularly a great spot (laughs) to have it. 
No, but specifically after passion, that's a really sucky time to be like, ah, I think I'm just going to see it in a couple months. Yeah. Like, that sucks. Yeah, it's almost like two full months. Yeah. Um, The first draft of this episode actually was supposed to take place at a daycare center. The episode originally involved some sort of hybrid senior home slash orphanage, and it would seem like the kids were evil, except actually the seniors were. They were like supposed to be worshiping some kind of panther god or something. And that was like the original script, which is interesting. And then, like I said before, they were supposed to be airing this one or this script was supposed to be shot for season one and it didn't. It was originally scheduled to be one of the first 13 episodes of season one or thir- or 12 episodes, um, but there were production problems. So they ended up having to shoot it for season two. And I think it was because they couldn't get a hospital location. Um, and I, that's something I noticed about this episode is there's not a whole lot of places that are shot outside of the hospital. You literally have like mm. Buffy's room and then the graveyard and then the library. Like two seasons library. Yeah. And then that's it. It's all mm-hmm. the hospital. And I mean, there's a lot of shots, especially for the outside that had to be shot at a real hospital, but, um, and then they said by the time they actually like got down to shooting the episode, so many developments had occurred in the show that the script had to be completely reworked. Um, I think at one point they were planning on having Buffy and Angel fighting side by side. And then Angel was supposed to be the one who brought Buffy to the hospital. But obviously that's not going to happen with where we're at in the season. Um, they they referred to this as the great lost Buffy episode because – like Robin Dean explained that they had some conceptual problems in the beginning. They couldn't quite like they couldn't quite nail down what it was that like Buffy's story was in this episode. Um, and the monster was like really difficult to comprehend. At one point they were like, I think they said the second or third draft, there was an old lady that was supposed to be sharing Buffy's room. And instead of the cousin who died, it was supposed to be Buffy's grandmother that died. So there's just like a lot of reworking they had to do to kind of figure out what it is they wanted this episode to be. And I think they, they think they nailed it. I think having Buffy be physically sick because of the emotional turmoil that she's going through made a lot of sense. Not to mention, like, mm-hmm. they, they mentioned multiple times in the episode that, like, this is not normal for Buffy. She's not normally, like, sick or just under the weather or whatever. Like, her mom even says that. Like, it's just the type of episode, like, you, I think you're supposed to kind of feel like this is weird. Like, you're kind of supposed mm-hmm. to feel off with Buffy. Raven Xander says, he's like, this is unsettling. I'm not used to seeing Buffy this way. And I think that's how the audience is supposed to feel as well. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's interesting to see. I mean, Giles talks about how, you know, death and disease, the two things that Buffy just can't control. And I think it's so clever of them to set up death in the first episode and passion and now disease in this one, kind of creating this like out of control feeling for Buffy and for us as the viewer going, oh my goodness, like Buffy's going up against some real tough stuff. Um, And I think if this episode had aired in season one, like it was originally supposed to, it would have been one of the better episodes of the season because it's really not a bad episode. But season two is Mm -hmm. just, it's becoming stronger and stronger. And the show has grown so much that this episode looks weak in comparison simply because of the episodes that have preceded it. Not to mention, I I think it's really hard when you're so enwrapped in the Buffy and Angela storyline to kind of like have to come out yeah, of it exactly. and like focus on a different mm. like person because you're like no like I want to know what's happening with like Angelus and like Drusilla and Spike and Buffy like you're so kind of taken with that that I yeah I understand why people are like no like oh this this episode feels weird but I also kind of like it because then it like 
it reminds you that even when there's like a terrible monster that seems super powerful and awful, like there is still other things that Buffy kind of has to fight. Like just because Angelus is a threat doesn't mean that there isn't other monsters. Mm. I think like the placement of this is good the more I think about it only because the next episode makes way more sense knowing that kill by death is right beforehand. Yep, yep I um, agree. The people who know, know. The next episode, we kind of dive into a lot of stuff yeah. um, that's been going on and kind of face a lot of things. And so I think having her be physically ill because she's thinking about what happened in Passion and been really like having the weight of her, weight of everything on her, I think that it makes sense. I think that the biggest thing that's unsettling is that the entire episode is in the hospital. It'd be different if it was like, the first like third or even like half of the episode was in the hospital and then she gets out and then they find some way to wrap up the episode or kind of bring it in a different direction. I think that it's just unsettling that Buffy doesn't feel herself, but that there's like, it seems like there's no resolution throughout the episode that she's going to leave or that things are going to get resolved or go back to normal. And so it just... It feels unnerving. Yeah, it does. And I mean, hospitals are kind of creepy, this one especially. But, you know, and Mm -hmm. yeah, the fact that Buffy's afraid of hospitals, like this episode reminded me a lot of Nightmares, which is also the episode that we were last in a hospital. And it's all about, you know, your inner fears and Buffy having to conquer her and conquer hers. And I think in a lot of ways, this episode isn't yet another example of Buffy having to conquer her fear. Um, And I just, I think Mm -hmm. that's really empowering and really cool. I like it. According to Joss Whedon, Derek Hinderstad was based on this thing that creeped him out as a little kid. Um, the themes of this episode are a lot of, you know, the weaker members of our society being preyed upon and people not believing them when they come to them and say, hey, I'm being, you know, uh, either abused or someone's creepy or like someone's bullying me or whatever. Children, the elderly, mentally unwell, like they make, you know, some subtle references to them. The idea of being pinned down by an invisible force and having the life sucked out of you is really an appropriate metaphor for how abuse can affect and suffocate us for the rest of our lives, especially fitting that, you know, it's on their their heads where, you know, it's our brain, it's our, um, it affects our psyche. Mm. There's a lot of parallels between Angelus and Derek Kinderstad. You know, Angelus is trying to take advantage of a weakened Buffy. All right. So the episode opens. We're in the graveyard. And Buffy's like hopping over the wall. The studio parking lot is it con- is connected to. Looks super sick. Nearly stakes Xander, Willow, and Cordelia. Which is this the first time we've seen Cordelia like out with the gang? I think so. At least um like patrolling with them because we haven't viewed uh like them patrolling in a while. Yeah, it's well we saw them in Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered. We didn't really see it very much in Passion, but I will say this episode was phenomenal Cordelia episode. She shone in this episode and I really like I agree. I feel like it's almost like a Cordelia centric episode. It was really good. So Willow gets on Buffy for patrolling while she's sick. Cordelia half the school's out with this flu. It's a serious deal, Buffy. And I was like, "Oh, does she care?" And then she's like, "We're all concerned about how gross you look." Eh, and there it is. <laughs> Also, this line hits different with COVID now. Like, hearing them talk about it and stuff, I kind of, like, got flashbacks to last year when everybody was like, um, you need to stay home. Like, this COVID thing is a big deal. Mm. 
Buffy insists on continuing to patrol. Willow, Buffy, come on. One night of rest is not going to kill you. Buffy, no, but it might kill somebody else. And there it is. Our first clue Mm. as to how hard Buffy is pushing herself. Xander, you mean Angel might, which I was like, okay, that was incredibly insightful. I was like, dude, shut up. No, but that was insightful, though. No, No, but it's like (sighs) – I don't know. It to me, it didn't read. There we no, go. No, 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 no. I just mean it doesn't read as like, like oh, Buffy, don't blame yourself. It reads as like, kind of like shoving it in her face. See, I didn't read that at all. I saw it as he was really? trying to remind her, like Buffy, don't put it on yourself. Like Angel's the one actually killing these people. You are not responsible for okay. that. Okay, maybe I'm just being pessimistic. That is okay. Though. We can have differing opinions. No, I, <laughs> I, the way he, like at least the way Nicholas Brendan delivered it, it sounded like he was kind of like like subtly correcting her in a kind way of being like, hey, you mean Angel might like, Buffy, don't put it on yourself. I That's how I saw it. And I was kind of like, okay, I think that was wise. Um, I put Buffy can't put the consequences of other people's actions on herself. And she really can't. That's why she's sick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Xander tells Buffy that she's only half a slayer with the shape she's in. Buffy, yeah, but I'm still the slayer. And as long as I am, Angel's not going to kill anybody else. Which is so hard because she has absolutely no control over that. And mm-hmm. it just, again, shows how much she's putting herself through. She's also setting herself up for, like, possible heartache by putting that on herself. Like, saying, oh, as long as I'm the slayer. So she's basically putting herself in a situation that if he does kill people, she can blame herself. Which, like, girl, you need to stop doing that to yourself. Like, it, you didn't know that was going to happen in the first place. And it's not your fault that he's killing yeah. people. Yep. But she feels like it is. Yeah. No, she totally does. And Angel shows up and attacks Cordelia of all people. I was like, does he even know her? <laughs> oh, yeah, he does. That's right. Because they like sat at the same table He w- or she was hitting on him the Halloween episode. Hello, salty yeah, goodness. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's funny. Buffy pulls him off and it's really clear that she's struggling to fight him and he hits her until she's down and it seems like he's actually going to go bite her. I was like, whoa, Angelus, like actually going for it. Um, And well done to the Scooby gang for actually like being able to kind of take him down a little bit. They throw the jacket over his head. I don't know. I feel like they waited so long. <laughs> like she's Why fighting. Why did they stake him? She's fighting him. There was multiple times where Angel was wide open and they all just stood there and waited until the last possible second to help her out. Yeah. I think sometimes they, they get confused because they're not sure if Buffy's going to come back and kick him in the butt. So I think they kind of waited out to see because um, I'm sure they're – and we've seen situations like this where it's like they seem like they're overpowering her and then she comes back. But they're like not sure if that's the case because she doesn't feel good. So they're kind of waiting it out and they're like, oh, actually, he's got to kill her. Let's help her out. But I'm also like his back was exposed to all of them. Why didn't they just stick Well, him? it's quite possible that they're not used to Buffy being this weak. So it, it kind of is taking them by surprise that she's not full strength. Two – like, we haven't really seen them all fight very efficiently, so they're probably thinking it's better for them to stand back than try to get involved and possibly hurt. I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking too logically about that. Maybe, like – or not logically. Maybe I'm thinking too much about it. Maybe it's, you know, it's probably more to do with the fact that they were like, let's make the viewer think that he's going to bite her. So somebody throws a jacket over his head. I didn't see who it was. Xander wallops him. Willow and Cordelia pull out crosses. Xander, take a walk over bite. <laughs> Angel leaves. Buffy collapses. 
And then we have this really cool steady cam long take through the hospital when um, they all come in. It's all one shot from the time that it opens up until it zooms mm-hmm. in on, on Xander's face at the very end. I thought that was pretty clever. Um, Xander's caring Buffy says she fell, the flu, fainted, and fell. She's sick. Make it better. <laughs> Buffy's laid on the gurney. The doctors examine her as they walk, says she's unresponsive and has possible fractures. Willow takes charge immediately. And I think this kind of goes in what we were talking about a couple episodes ago. I think, Tabby, you made this point about how Willow tends to just like be like, all right, what can I do in a crisis? Like she doesn't like sit there and dwell on it. She kind of has to like do something to keep herself Mm -hmm. busy. And I thought this was a good example of that. She does a good job in this episode of kind of knowing her role. But sometimes she doesn't really quite know how to love somebody the way they need to be loved. I think she overcorrects and just tries to gain control over the situation. Um, and I think she does a great job in this episode. And she's like, okay, what's, what can be helpful to Buffy, but that I also can do well? And so she does her homework for her. And I think that that is a great way of kind of using your talents to help somebody else out when they need it. I'll tell Giles, tell him what happened, tells Cordelia to call Joyce and says, tell her not what happened. Just get her here. I thought it was interesting that Willow tells Cordelia to call not Xander because I think Xander looks like he's in shock for one. But you can also see like Xander doesn't really get this shaken by things like at least as much as we've seen him in the past couple of seasons. And I think a lot of it is he really relies on Buffy. And so I think he's a little shook by seeing Buffy just collapse. And I think that this episode really revealed a lot about Sander and kind of where his heart lies. And I mean, we see that multiple times throughout the episode and we'll bring it up. But I think that Xander really, really deeply cares whether he'll admit it or not for Buffy. Um, and I think that seeing her really this shooken up is, is hard for him. I agree. You're right, Leah. This, this episode really did reveal a lot about Xander. And I don't know that it necessarily mm-hmm. revealed it to us because we've been seeing it, but I think it revealed a lot to the characters in the, in yep. the show. Yeah. And the, and the long take creates a feeling that you're going through it in real time, which makes it feel more realistic and creates a sense of urgency. I thought that was a really good choice to make that in one entire shot. Um, and have like the camera moving around too. It's not like it's just sitting in one place and the characters are moving. Like the camera is literally moving around the people in the scene. So it creates this, the sense of like you're actually there with them, which I really, really enjoy. It's different from like, um, innocence where they had a lot of those long shots, but the camera would just stay in one spot and the characters would move around it. And so a lot of times you didn't even notice that it was one shot because you're watching the characters. But in this one, you actually notice that the shot is one continuous shot because the camera itself moves. And so I think it's done intentionally. It just creates an interesting feel. All right. So the gang's in the waiting area. Giles standing close to the desk. I love that he doesn't even sit down. He's like cleaning his glasses, which I've noticed he does when he's like uncomfortable or nervous or like thinking deeply. I, I kind of always view it as like when he takes off his glasses and or cleans them, he's not ready to take in what's around him so like when we find out in innocence that buffy slept with angel and that's what caused him to lose his soul he takes off his glasses when she tells him what happened and i know there's some other situations i can't think of right now but that's one that i thought of that i feel like when he doesn't want to like i guess believe what's really going on 
he's not ready to accept it. He takes it off because he doesn't want to physically see it as well. It's kind of like, in my mind, it's a metaphor. Yeah, I think it's also like a nervous tick too. He just takes it off. He's like, has to have something to do. I read a review. Someone talked about how Giles' glasses get like a, an award of their own. Like he really like works them to death in this episode. He takes them off a lot. <laughs> but I think that was probably an intentional choice on Tony Head's part because we forget that like we're looking at Buffy and how much she's going through, but we forget that Giles is also going through a lot too. Like his girlfriend was just murdered the episode before. And yeah. so him – Fidgeting with his glasses and doing stuff this episode is probably indicative of his mental state and how he's just kind of pushing forward. He's a lot like Willow, but I think he's also wrestling with a lot of stuff on his own too. But also think about like both Buffy's parental figures in this episode are going through hard stuff with Buffy in very completely different ways. I feel for Joyce and she kind of feels helpless. Like she feels like she can't help in any way and she's not there throughout the night. She doesn't know what's really going on, what Buffy's really going through. And then there's Giles who cares for Buffy, doesn't know what to do. So he just kind of take reins on figuring out what's happening with like the monster death and things like that and trying to help her through that situation. Um but they're both just like having to take on different weights. And I feel like that's a great way of kind of looking at parental figures. And sometimes some of them have to take on this part of their child's pain and someone else to take on a different part of their pain. Um, and it's very different in this situation, obviously, because it's, it's, um, fantastical. But it's, I feel bad for Joyce because I think that she's really trying hard in this episode, but she is not given the full you know, scoop or whatever. So she doesn't really know how to fully help. And I think Joyce does a, a fine job with what she knows. I don't think mm -hmm. – yeah, I think this episode is interesting because they could have gone like the extra mile if they were wanting to paint Joyce as a bad mom and be like – because the metaphor yeah. is all about like not listening to your child or like suppressing their truth or whatever. So I think it would – if they wanted her to be painted as a bad parent, they could have done more with her. And yet every right. time you see her in this episode, she's being very kind and compassionate or servant-hearted, you know? Yeah, I feel like she's being a good mom yeah. in this one. I mean, with the information and everything she's given, we see that Buffy feels very comfortable around her mom and wants to go home mm -hmm. and be sick with her mom rather than at the creepy hospital. Yeah, her comment about how her bed is the best bed. My bed is better than any bed that's not my bed. I was like so relatable, especially if you spent the night in a hospital. Mm -hmm. I also mm -hmm. like the fact that Joyce is very, very aware of Buffy's feelings. And I like the fact that, like, Joyce is like, oh, well, Buffy doesn't like hospitals because of something extremely traumatic happened to her at a yeah. young age. But I like that Joyce actually thinks about that and is mm -hmm. like, oh, I, I, I can imagine that this is a hard for Buffy, that this is not easy for her, where I feel like a lot of parents would honestly probably forget that that even happened. And so when that did, like, reoccur... They wouldn't think like, oh, this could be traumatic for my child. Like a lot of them would just be like, oh, like it happened so long ago. Yeah, I agree. There's also a lot of intentional dialogue that's written to emphasize the fact that Buffy's still a child. Like they talk about the pediatric ward. Yeah. They have, um, you know, call Buffy's mom. That she could see yeah, death. Yeah, she can see death. I mean, she can see death not because she's a child. I think it's because of the fever. Or, I mean, it is because of the fever. But um, it's interesting how, you know, they say call Joyce and like Joyce comes in. Like we haven't really had to have Joyce come in as like a I'm here to take care of you type of thing because Buffy's so self-sufficient. So it's a really interesting episode to kind of view from a different lens. 
Um, also, with Buffy freaking out, screaming about the vampires, I think this is the third reference that Buffy has made about vampires with her mom there. It's really interesting. And like, Joyce has got to be like, why does she keep mentioning vampires? Like, she talked about it in The Witch. Mm. She talked about it in Bad Eggs. And then she talked about it in this episode. And like, but I mean, to be fair, if you really think about it, the lore of vampires and like werewolves and all this stuff has been there for so long that it's like, if anyone, like if I had a child and they were talking about vampires all the time, I wouldn't automatically be like, oh my gosh, vampires are real. I would just be like, oh, my child has a weird fascination with vampires. Like, because like, it's such a normal, like mystical thing. It's kind of like if you hear a child tra- like talking about like, like mermaids. Or, like, unicorns. Like, you're not going to be like, oh, that's really weird because it's, like, they're normal mythical creatures. But at 17? Yeah, but in Sunnydale? I don't know. It's just – it's – I – listen, I knew girls when I was, like, in middle school that still believed in, like, Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy and all that. And so – Middle school? Legitimately middle school. And so, like, yeah, she's a little old, but I also, like – I understand why her mom isn't, like, super alarmed by the fact that she, like, has mentioned vampires a couple times. Yeah. I don't know. It's just a little strange to me. Um, But do you guys notice that Cordelia can't watch when the doctor sedates her? Like, she turns away. And I thought that was kind of a touching moment from Cordelia. I mean, it could also be like, ooh, I can't stand needles. But I I felt like that was a look of compassion on Cordelia's face. I missed it because I actually turned away when they were sedating her. (laughs) Same. <laughs> yeah. I saw the that. needle and I was like, <laughs> close my eyes. Yep, that's hilarious. That's really funny. Which is ironic coming from me and Tabby considering we both have like multiple tattoos. That's very different than being punctured yeah. with a needle going in. Uh, anyways, moving on. It's fine. I mean, I was in and out of hospitals all last year. I was poked over 25 times. So Ugh. I actually think that that's my worst nightmare. So, well. Never have children. I'm getting very crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Fine with me. (laughs) He's like, fine. Didn't want it anyway. Yeah, if you have to draw my blood, then. Yeah. Yeah, who cares about giving birth? But drawing blood is where Leah draws a line. (laughs) Yeah, for real. So the gang tries to cover for her child. Yes, we'll go get those vampires. And then he, like, looks at Joyce, who's, like, looking at him very strangely. I heard it's best to play along. (laughs) Great line back. The music for this episode is very similar to the Bangel theme, but it's a slightly dissonant version of it. Did you notice that? I heard yeah. that. Yeah. Yep. Which I think is trying to convey, the music is trying to convey that the actual problem is not necessarily this monster. The actual problem is not necessarily Buffy. I mean, she's sick and this stuff is happening. The real underlying problem is what's going on with Angelus. And so I think that's why they have it here. It's really cool. All right, so Xander says what we're all thinking, that he's not used to seeing Buffy so freaked. Joyce talks about how Buffy hates hospitals due to her cousin Celia dying in a hospital when she was eight. Um, Giles goes with Joyce. Which, um, (laughs) can we talk about how traumatizing that must have been for Buffy? Like, not only did her, like, the way that Joyce mentions it, which is how, like, I think that Joyce probably thought it happened, is that her cousin Celia, like, just you know, died in her sleep or passed, you know, which is very traumatic still. But, like, there is a different traumatic experience when you are literally viewing your cousin screaming out for help their last, like, few moments before they die. And then you're yelling for doctors to come in, and by the time they come in, like, she's dead. 
that is so traumatic. Like, poor Buffy. Like, she's been surrounded by death her whole life. Yeah, I agree. And the actress who played Celia did a way too good of a job in that scene because I just – I can't watch it every yeah. time. It's too traumatizing. No, she did a phenomenal job. I was like – I really believed that there was something yeah, there. Yeah, no, she did a good job. I think too it's hard because it's like – okay, so if Celia had the flu, I don't know why they would have Buffy visit her. Because they wouldn't want Buffy to get the flu. There's a lot. I mean, that's the thing about this episode. There's a lot of like little things that you're like, that doesn't make sense. Like they kind of just threw it together. But again, like it's a supernatural show. Also, like, why was Buffy alone with her sick cousin? Like, where were all the parental figures yeah, when eight. these children were like, what, seven? Yeah. Yeah. And you typically, yeah, you, you're not allowed to like leave minors by themselves. I'm pretty sure in a hospital. Yeah, bed at night. Yeah, it was, yeah, it, there's a lot of questions. That's, that's a good point. <laughs> All right. So Giles and Joyce go out to find a phone to call Buffy's dad, which we're like, oh, yeah, Buffy has a dad. <laughs> Haven't heard from Hank in a while. Um, she thanks Giles for how he looks out for her. This is a really interesting conversation. And it's also incredibly interesting that she names drops or didn't name drop. It says she's going to go call Buffy's dad. And then we have a meaningful conversation with the guy who's basically her surrogate father. I think that's very intentional. But I also think that it's interesting that this is what now, like, the second episode we've heard of Buffy's dad, like, or third episode, so he was at the beginning of the season two. But the other episode that he was, like, primarily in is the episode in the hospital in the first season. Yeah, Nightmares. And so it's, like, so many weird connections. But, like, also, on another note, why is Joyce so casual with the fact that Giles, as a librarian, keeps, like, showing up, like... I know. I kept thinking that's like she's she's super she's super nice about it. She's like, I love how supportive you. But if let's say my child had the flu and like late at night was out with her friends, and then randomly a teacher showed up, I'd be like, (laughs) What are you doing here? A male teacher. I'd be be different if it was. Yeah, I'd be creeped out. I'd be like, Listen, I it's nice and all, but like my daughter's a teenager. I really don't think this is appropriate. Like, it's. I obviously Giles isn't doing anything creepy, but like I, it's just interesting that Joyce does not question a thing. Yeah, and he's the one that she's like, Giles, we have to go get the vampires. You know, and it's not like, hey, mom, I have to go fight vampires. It's it's interesting, and it's also it is interesting too. Again, I know this is all like pointing to Buffy's mental state, but the fact that she's like, I have to go get the vampires in her state is again referencing that even when she's not quite herself, she's still thinking about her mission, what she's supposed to be doing, like her calling. And I thought that was interesting. All right, so the conversation with Giles and Joyce. Joyce says she's really sorry about what happened to Miss Calendar that Buffy had told her they were close, which I thought was interesting because that it's a reference to like Buffy and Joyce had a conversation about this, and I think that's really important um, to get little bits of that because it's important to see that Joyce and Buffy are close um, and that Joyce is at least privy to some parts of Buffy's life outside of home. Um, then she talks about how it's really affected Buffy that she never gets sick. And this, this moment's important because we need to see that Giles is still wrestling through this as well. You could tell he doesn't really want to talk about it. He's still kind of closed off. Um, it's also really funny because the phone is clearly not plugged in behind them. It's like very much not plugged in at all. <laughs> really? I didn't even I notice didn't, yeah, that. Yeah, look in the back, it's like the back of the, where the cord would normally be plugged into the to the wall there's like nothing plugged in there there's no cord oh my god (laughs) yeah 
Um, Joyce offers to help if Giles needs anything. And all I could think was, are they having a moment? Xander asks Cordy if she thinks Buffy will be okay in the hospital overnight. Cordelia, I don't know. Lizette got her nose done here. She came in here looking for the Gwyneth Paltrow and it looked more like the Mr. Potato Head, <laughs> which is especially funny because Joss also wrote Toy Story. Oh, oh yeah. that is interesting. I always forget that he did. I wonder if that was an intentional nod. Probably was. Willow looking completely disgusted. Buffy's not here for cosmetic surgery. Cordelia, no, but while she's in here, she might as well get that thing done and then they discuss the fact that angel can come in since it's a public building i wish everyone had remembered that with the school last episode with jenny calendar and then 2 27 a.m uh this song that happens in the scene is on the season two dvds like the main menu so i've heard it like constantly over the past like few months and it's burned in my brain it's creepy even like the creepy little like he 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 or whatever from the guy it's in it's in the main Ew, menu. What it's like the heck? What a, a random song. It's very weird. It's very random. Buffy wakes up, sees a little boy, which why is it always a little boy for Pete's sake? It's like we had the annoying one. We had Billy. Now we have Ryan. Like, I don't understand. The creepiest part, though, is he like haunches over and like walks away. And then you see this scariest looking man slash demon. He's got like a bowler hat and like, what is it? Like a huge set of teeth on the outside of his face. Oh my gosh, so creepy. Buffy goes to follow him. She's clearly not well. The hall is dark with like this reddish light and there's like a creepy guy mopping in the back. It's just very scary. We get a flashback to young Buffy walking down a hospital hall looking at scary trays full of tools. Um, She approaches a curtain and we hear a heartbeat before suddenly it's 2.27 again and Buffy's actually waking up. Um, this reminds me so much of Nightmares. It's weird. Um, James Jude Courtney is the actor who plays Dare Kinderstad. And fun fact, he's actually the same guy that plays Michael Myers in Halloween 2018. Isn't that crazy? I feel like that was done on purpose. Well, he's not the original Mike Myers. He's the newer Mike Myers. So, oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Never mind. I, yeah. Take, I take back my comment. <laughs> yeah. He's a fantastic character actor. Dang, he must have been older when they did it. Yeah, but I mean, Michael Myers was supposed to be old, like, canonically, too, so it fits. Mm. Um, And then we have the same shot of her walking down the hallway. This this episode drives me nuts because she, like, takes the IV out. And whenever you take the IV out, like, the machine beats, like, crazy. Oh, I can't. Yeah, so it's like, okay, there's a lot of stuff going on, but whatever. Um, a security guard watches creepily from the side. The nurse is rolling out a body. Man, I hate it when we lose the young ones. Okay. Why are all the children in the same room? Like, how traumatizing? Okay. I have mm-hmm. so many questions. Why yeah. are all of them in the same room? Yes. Especially when it's a contagious flu. Because, like, think about it this way. <laughs> if you have, like, one kid that's, like, worse than the other, wouldn't his bacteria – like, I just don't feel like having them all in the same room would be a good idea. Like, not to mention, uh, why is there only one doctor treating, like, ten kids? Like, they should each have a normal doctor coming and visiting them. But then it also just doesn't make sense because if they are dying, like, wouldn't they have their specific – like, it just doesn't make sense. Like, it really just doesn't make sense at all. So there's a couple things. 
there's actually at least two doctors treating them because Dr. Wilkinson is the woman. She's there as well. Um, the other thing is that if they all have the same flu, like they're not going to get each other more sick. That's not how flus work. If you have the same flu, it's mm-hmm. just a matter of like how bad you have it. The weird thing is, is they have access to the basement from their room. <laughs> I don't get that at all. I don't get that yeah, either. what the heck? And the door's and not the- even locked. The yeah. anatomy of this hospital makes no sense to me. It like, really who doesn't. Built this? Yeah, it's it's very seems very um uh plot device. This I would have been a really is. funny episode to have David on because he's an EMT and he would have been picking this episode <laughs> apart. There's a lot yeah. that's not great with the science, but that's okay. We will suspend our disbelief. So Buffy looks in the room, sees Dr. Wilkinson. She says, I'm just saying step back on the dosage until we can analyze the results. The other doctor is essentially saying, hey, like there isn't much time they need to get this done. Dr. Wilkinson points out that this is not the normal course of treatment. Um, the other doctor says that they aren't responding to the normal course of treatment so that they – and that they're actually getting worse. Um, which I was like, okay, why are you having this conversation in front of all these children too? Like, number one, they just saw one of their friends die, Tina, and then they rolled the body out. And then now they're having this conversation like in front of them. I just – yeah, there's just a not – like that's yeah, also a, poor kids. a HIPAA violation. Like there's a lot of stuff going on I know. here. <laughs> so Buffy exits to see two little kids. He comes at night. The grownups don't see him. He was with Tina. He'll come back for us. Who? Death. Which, it just gives me chills, but it's also, like, such a good plot for right after Passion because Passion was all about death. And now this one, they like, the guy's name is Death. It's just really cool. I got to say, the metaphor is a little hard for me to understand this episode. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? <laughs> They're like, Death. I'm like, mm, can you spell it out? <laughs> I, I, I will say, though, this is going to be a super weird nod, but I, re- I read this book in high school. It's called The Book Thief, one of my favorite books I read in high school. And the narrator of the book was Death Personified. And so, like, mm. death was the speaker of it. And so, every time I watch this episode, I always just think of that book and how, like, death can just be personified as, like, a person and stuff. And I just always love to see how people choose to go that route if they do want to be like, oh, it's death. Like, um, mm. but I don't know. I thought it was interesting and sad that, like, kids were like, oh, it's death. Like, not even, like, I It's don't just know. a monster. Just, like, no, yeah. it's death. Yeah. Did you guys ever see the episode of The Twilight Zone where it's basically the same thing, but it's with older people? So there's um, death personified with like a there's like an old woman who refuses to leave her house because yeah. she she saw someone on a bus and has seen several older people. Every time they talk to this man who looks the same, they end up just passing away as soon as he leaves them. She saw on a bus with somebody she saw in like a grocery store. And so she's like, well, I'm just not going to leave my house. But it's actually like I feel like the Twilight Zone is kind of creepy sometimes, but the oh, episode yeah. ended up being like really like sweet only because like the it's supposed to be like the angel of death, but he's supposed to be really nice and he ends up getting injured right outside of her house and she lets uh, him in and they uh, and then they they start becoming friends and he's really nice to her and then at the end she goes I know who you are and he's like it's not as scary as you think it is and then he like walks away like kind of like walking away with her, but it's like her spirit and at the end she like is like dead in bed. But this episode reminds me of Well, <laughs> I mean, I, we, I figured what was going to happen at the end. But yeah, that's <laughs> – You're like, but and then imagine, at the end, she's dead in bed. But you imagine like the 
the angel of death is like, come on, can I just leave this poor old lady by herself? She just hasn't left her house in years. And he's like, hmm, what tactic can I think of? I'm going to almost pretend to die outside of her door and she has to leave me, bring me in. <laughs> That's really funny. I don't think death is – this is supposed to actually be a representation of death. I think it's just supposed to be like from the kid's perspective, they think he's death. You know, he's not actually death. But have you guys ever seen the – it's Anthony Hopkins and Brad Pitt and it's – um oh, it's Meet Joe Black. That's what it is. It's Meet Joe Black. It's No, I need to though. I've heard it's movie. really good. Yeah. It's about death essentially decides – he hears – uh, Anthony Hopkins talking one day about life and like living it to its fullest and how love is the best thing. And so he decides to come down to earth and live as a human for unspecified time and hmm. experience what it's like to be human, which sounds very cheesy, but I promise you, like, it's a very artsy movie and it's, I think, like close to three hours long, but it is just, it is moving. I like cry every time I watch it. So, anyway, seen that Brad Pitt would be in that type of movie. I feel he like he holds not, his, not his own. He holds his own. Him and yeah. Anthony Hopkins He's really good. have some fantastic and very powerful moments. It's really good. Mm. So Anyway, okay, moving on. So in the lobby, Xander is waiting faithfully, looking out for Angel, who shows up whistling with flowers. Okay, I think this is probably the most pivotal scene for the entire episode. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Um, so Xander stands in front of him. Visiting hours are over and jealous. Well, I'm pretty much family. Xander, yeah, why don't you come back during the day? Oh, gee, no, I guess you can't. Xander had some good lines. And jealous, if I decide to walk into Buffy's room, do you think for one microsecond that you could stop me? Xander, maybe not. Maybe that security guard couldn't either. Security guard definitely couldn't. Or those cops or the orderlies. But I'm kind of curious to find out, you game. Angel, Buffy's white knight. You still love her. It might. It must just eat you up that I got there first. Which I think this is when Xander finds out that they slept together because I don't think Xander knew why Angelus really. And I don't because this is the first time. No, I think this is. I think this is the first time he knew because the next thing he says is, "You're going to die, and I'm going to be there." I think Xander didn't know, and they really zoom in on his face. I think Xander. At least had an idea. Mm -hmm. Maybe he didn't have confirmation. But I think either way, I don't think he likes being told that he loves Buffy, even though he knows it. Especially mm. by Xander. Not Xander. By uh, Angel. And I think that it's just like kind of salt in the wound. Because everyone knows Xander loves Buffy still. Like everyone knows that. Even his girlfriend mm -hmm. knows that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that him know like having the idea that. Angel and Angelus know that he loves Buffy must feel very uh, humbling. And I don't think that Xander likes kind of being put in his place. Well, I think Xander, I mean, he hated Angel. He hates Angelus. And I think that mm -hmm. it's interesting because nobody is really talking about the elephant in the room of Xander loving Buffy. I mean, Cordelia touches on it in this episode and she's touched on it in episodes past, but no one's actually like come out and been like, you love her or you still love her. And mm -hmm. so the fact that Angel is calling out Xander's motivations in a way that nobody else is or has is incredibly interesting. But he also did that in Angel. So it's kind of mirroring that episode where he comes in and he's like, you love her, don't you? And then Xander goes, don't you? And so he kind of 
pulls him to go and help Buffy. Oh, you mean Prophecy whereas, Girl? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's Prophecy Girl? Sorry, my bad. Yeah. Um, and then this episode is the same thing, but it's Angelus who's doing it and he's kind of using it against him. Mm. She's very funny how those are like the, Yeah, that's a good parallel. Yeah. Uh, do you guys think if Angelus had actually tried to get into Buffy's room that all those people could have stopped him? No. He likes a long game. Yes, but I, I, I think that it was more so of like – I really do think Angel could have taken all of them, especially since what is the cop going to do? Shoot him? Like, and so I think that he would have been able to fight them all off simply because they all would have been unprepared for what he is. But I think it was more so Angel didn't want to, like, Angelus slash Angel is intelligent, and I think that he's not the type that's just going to, like, go in head first and figure it out. Like, he's very kind of like what Tabby said. He likes to play the long game. But I also think he wants Buffy's death to be poetic. And I think that him beating a bunch of guys up and then just killing her in her hospital bed is not very poetic. And so I think that he either wants it to be super easy, where he's just like, might as well take this chance, or he wants to be poetic. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think he could have killed everybody there, but I think it's not worth it. You know, I think there's there's nothing really like he killed Buffy and then he'd be like, oh, now what? You know, I think he's too obsessed with her to just kill her flippantly, like you said. So then we have a flashback. Celia and Buffy are playing. Celia is trapped under an avalanche of pillows and Buffy was Power Girl and came and rescued her. You're safe now. Power Girl is actually a DC comic superheroine who is also blonde and super strong, which I thought was really cute. Buffy had a little superhero growing up. And then flashes again to Celia in the hospital. Buffy pulls back the curtain and we see Celia there. Um, in the morning, the doctor tells Buffy her fever's gone down, seems shocked that the swelling has gone down in her arm. When she asks about if she has the same virus as the kids, the doctor looks like she's, you know, hiding something. And the gang comes in. Xander brings her balloons. Willow did all of Buffy's assignments. And Cordelia, nobody told me I was supposed to bring a gift. I was out of the loop on gifts. Giles, it's tradition among people <laughs> i love oh, the pause gosh. between among and people like um oh, humans he's like you should know this <laughs> yeah um this it, is the interaction i was telling you about like willow just like did a very sweet thing for her it was like yeah. oh like i did all of your assignments you don't have to be stressed out about it which is very kind of her but also cordy's outfit is so cute in the so scene. cute she's like a monochromatic like blue outfit from head to toe and like but it's like they're diff slightly different shades, and usually that would be kind of weird, but it really works. She pulls it off cute. for sure. They go for a walk. Willow's pushing Buffy in the wheelchair. She tells them about the doctor giving the kids experimental treatments, says she's not sure what he's up to, and that she saw um, – or that a kid, Ryan, saw death. And everyone's like, well, we're not – like, they don't quite believe her. And I'm like, guys, again, here we go. And they're like, you know, you sure you saw something? You weren't just, like, delirious. I'm like, guys, she's the slayer. Like, come on. When Buffy says she's seen something, Cordelia, so this isn't about you being afraid of hospitals because your friend died and you want to conjure up a monster that you can fight so you can save everybody and not feel so helpless? Dang, Cordelia, insightful, but dang. <laughs> I also just like her line after that where, like – uh, Giles mm -hmm. is like Cordelia you have no tact and then how she's just like well tact is um what did, what did she say just she's not just like, saying true stuff yeah she yeah. says tact is just not saying tr like true stuff which I feel like is very Cordelia like Cordelia is many things but she's not a liar like 
she will tell the truth, even if it's hurtful, even if it's not done in a very tactful way. Like, Cordelia is someone who tells the truth. And I, I love that about her. Well, I, I like the little small arc in this episode where she talks about how being tactful is not saying true things. And then later on, Giles is by himself with Willow in the library, and he talks about how Cordelia's right and how, like, Buffy mm-hmm. – um, could be going through all of this because she's trying to cope in very different ways and she's not like facing a lot of stuff that's happening. Um, and I like that he's like, you know what? Let's face what could actually be happening rather than trying to tiptoe around and like not face the hard things. Yeah. I mean, she's tactless, but she's also incredibly correct. And I, and again, yeah. you know, Buffy is trying to find something to fight because she feels helpless. Um, I wanted to talk about Charisma Carpenter for a second. So we're starting to see Cordelia be more involved with the Scooby gang. And um, I read an interview in the Watcher's Guide where, you know, Charisma talks about how she felt when she started reading the script and realizing she was going to become more involved with the Scoobies. She said, I wasn't sure how I felt about it because I didn't want to lose my edge. I didn't want her to be nice. I didn't want her to change because that's who she is. She notes that Cordelia's somewhat rough edges can make for difficult experiences with fans. She says sometimes it's hard when they don't expect you to be anything but snobby. They don't necessarily want to approach you. Fan letters often ask, when are you going to be nice to Buffy? Fans don't know how to take me. They don't know that I'm nice, that they don't know that I'm normal and Cordelia is just a character. People get confused. It's a TV show. I provide conflict and that's what good drama needs. Perhaps because of that element of conflict, Charisma didn't want her character to change too much. In fact, when discussing a moment of kindness, Cordelia exhibits towards Xander. Carpenter asserts in no uncertain terms that we don't want too many of those nice moments. In fact, she has often urged the producers to to make her meaner. It would be boring if she was too one-dimensional. It's a challenge for me to find that balance. That's why I I enjoy playing her so much. She's got to Mm. be somewhat tolerable or why would they hang out with her? But I try not to lose her edge, her honesty. And I thought that was really She's a hard character to keep consistent and then also not flatten her out when she's in a relationship. And I think that they're doing a good job right now, even though her relationship is not healthy. They're still maintaining her edge, but they're still – and they're not flattening her out as a character as soon as she becomes, quote, unquote, softened by love. And I also just feel like as a character, like, Cordelia is just always interesting. Like – no matter what she goes through, she just is always a fascinating character to have on your screen. And I think that most mm-hmm. of that is because of Charisma Carpenter's just acting and the way that she portrayed Cordelia. I like what Buffy says after that. She says, it's real because that little boy is afraid of something. And I thought that was really insightful. And I think that's a really important thing. It's like, believe the victim. You know what I mean? And especially with little kids, it's tricky because it's like, okay, like, is something actually happening? Is it something that maybe they've been exposed to that they're kind of putting on themselves? But I think the fact that she's like, something is happening because he's afraid of something. That that in it itself is proof that there's something going on. And I thought mm-hmm. that was a really good point. So I think what you do in horror movies is you take an idea that everyone kind of like either makes it 
super blown over or dismisses it and excuses it for different rational reasons in real life. But then you can twist them and making them horrifying in a fantastical world. And for instance, like kids are, tend to be a lot more scared about stuff that, that adults either tend to ignore or they grow out of as adults. And so you can really kind of make children being scared of monsters or scared of the dark and you can make horror movies based on that especially through the child's lens like this one it's like about um oh children tend to quote unquote see monsters and so they're going to make them actual monsters in this episode or it's like um the whole idea of like children should never have to go through dying in a hospital and so they kind of squished both those things together and made it a death monster that only children can see so i just i love the idea of the monster of the week in this episode because it's something that like us in real life that we kind of like ignore that like younger kids like see monsters in their closets or like things like that and then you can make it a horror trope yeah and i mean buffy's technically still a child even though she's not as little as these other ones and so i think it's again another empowering message of a child saving the day you know or even just like the metaphor that like Young people shouldn't have to go through all these things. And that's shown through Buffy, too. Like, Buffy shouldn't be having to go through all of these things that adults have to face. Like, like actual monsters that she has to fight. And these children in the hospital are going through the same thing. Not as much as Buffy, but it's... The metaphors are very similar because it's like these children should not... Like, children with cancer in hospitals shouldn't have to be going through that fight on their own. Like, they're so young, they shouldn't have to be dealing with that. In this fantastical world, Buffy shouldn't, at her age, shouldn't have to be carrying the whole weight of the world on her shoulders alone. That's, and I like how they showed that through, like, children in a hospital. That's a really good point, Tabs. I totally agree. Yeah, these kids are kids that, you know have to be in hospitals for cancer or whatever mm -hmm. or go through trauma with things when they're younger should not have to – are not made mm -hmm. to to be able to carry that weight and that burden. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a good correlation between the children and Buffy, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. The sad thing is at the end of the day, like, who's going to protect Buffy? Buffy protects the kids. Like, she doesn't really have anyone yeah. that's going to protect her, you know? I think the implication is it's her friends. I think that's why they end up with Xander and Willow and her all in her bed at the end. The idea that, like, she has people that will have her back. But it's, it's just not quite the same. But also, given the opportunity, a lot of these people end up living up to the expectations. Like, um, what's, what's the boy's name? Ryan? Mm -hmm. Even in, like, situations, like, he was pretty brief, too. Like, yeah. he's, like, a literal child baby, and he's in the basement protecting, All the other like, little children. ones, yeah. I know. Like, given an opportunity, so these kids can be so brave, sometimes more so than adults, because they see things for what they really are, because they're innocent. Yeah. No, yeah, that's really insightful, Tabs. So in the records room, Cordy and Xander sneak in, which is reminiscent of innocence when they're sneaking into the weapons area on base. They're trying to find out how Tina died. Cordelia, this is what happens when you're compassionate towards sick people. They take advantage of you. Xander just gives her a look. Uh-huh. Buffy almost died just to put you out. Also, how do they get in the security or the records room without any security, like, noticing them? You would think that since records are confidential, there would be, like, someone being like, hey, maybe don't go in there. Yeah, you get a HIPAA violation. You get a HIPAA violation. It's just, like, all over the place. Yeah, for real. Yep. 
Cordelia, I didn't want to be the first one to say it. Xander looks irritated with her and tells her to go look somewhere else. Security guard finds her. So the security guard is played by Willie Garson, who's also known as Stanford, Carrie Bradshaw's gay best friend on Sex and the City, which I thought was really funny. The Dr. Richard Hurd is also known as Admiral Owen Paris on Star Trek Voyager, too. In the library, Willow and Giles are going to do research. Willow can tell Giles is not really wanting to do the research, that he doesn't really believe Buffy. Um, and he says, Cordelia may be hermetically insensitive, like you said, Tabs, but she may also be right. Death and disease are things, perhaps the only things that Buffy cannot fight. It's only natural for her to try to create a defeatable opponent, especially now after Jenny. Willow acknowledges that, that it's true, but points out that they live on the Hellmouth and that the kids might actually see a real monster. Giles remembers that sometimes small children can see things that adults don't see, our true selves, our hidden faces. They hypothesize that the kids might be afraid of the doctor, Stanley Backer, and decide to look him up. So that's kind of like what you were saying, Tabs. And then back in the file room, Cordy is keeping the security guard distracted by flirting with him. She's actually really good at it. She's like, do you ever get scared? He's like, fear is for the weak. Either that or live in the now. I haven't decided yet. I know the fact that he literally doesn't even know his own motto. Yeah. It's like, man, this guy's a catch. <laughs> right. And he's a security guard and he's just like, he's super sus when like Buffy, the ward patient, is walking down the hallway, but, you know, doesn't see Xander and Cordelia sneaking into the file room. He's a crappy security guard. Says Dr. Backer is able to see the real truth about children that sometimes they die. Xander makes like a bajillion noises. Like, what the heck? He kept being so loud back there. I was like, dude. Cordelia, uh, you have the most perfect nose I've ever seen. You must work out. Yeah, like those two correlate. Yeah. <laughs> and in the hallway, Xander is jealous that Cordelia was being touchy-feely with the security guard, which I wrote in my notes, I think this scene is supposed to be kind of like, hey, look, their relationship is progressing. They get jealous for each other now. But the thing is, is that like, I don't know that that's a progression for one. Two, they never actually talk about it. The scene like that comes after that with the donuts, they don't actually like that's supposed to be like, oh, we're a, mm -hmm. we're good now. Once again, they resolve things without actually talking. The scene is just it's so important because it tells so much mm -hmm. because like one, you have Cordelia finally calling him out and being like, uh, I know you're into Buffy. I've seen you check her out, all this stuff. Um. And then, like, obviously, like Sarah said, they don't really talk about it. And it's, like, a part of me is, like, good for your Cordelia for calling him out. And then another part of me is, like, why are you letting yourself put up with this, Cordelia? Like, it's so obvious that Cordelia is way more into Xander than Xander is into her. And I don't think that both of them really realize that yet. But, like, even the fact that, like, Cordelia is just, like, putting up with his behavior when we know Xander would never put up with that behavior from Cordelia. It's just, like, ugh. Like, Cordelia, you deserve better than someone who's in love with someone else. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting that he's, like, Cordelia, someone's got to watch her back. And she says, yeah, well, I've seen you watch her back. And Xander legitimately doesn't understand. He's, like, yeah, what is that supposed to mean? And she has to spell it out for him. I was using the phrase watch her back as a euphemism for looking at her butt. You know, sort of a pun. And he's like, oh, right. 
hey. And I thought that was interesting because normally Xander's the one that says those things and Cordelia's the one who doesn't quite understand it. Like things go over her head all the time. And so I think it was like really satisfying to kind of see Cordelia like showing how intelligent she is and smart and being like, hey, I actually noticed that you're checking out another girl and she's actually like using uh, a, a sort of a pun, using his own like humor to get back at him. It's just like, or not get back at him, but we kind of call him out. And I just thought it was so clever. It was really well done. Mm -hmm. So Buffy's feeling better walking around to see the kids. Ryan is coloring. You shouldn't be here. Contagious. Buffy. Oh, what do you think? Because I'm a grown up. Believe me, I'm not that grown up. Sees the picture that he's coloring. It's like a really scary rendition of the creepy death guy. Ryan says he'll come again tonight. Buffy promises that she won't let it hurt any of them, says that she believes him, which is interesting because nobody really mm -hmm. like believes her at this point, but her telling him she believes mm -hmm. him is huge. This whole interaction is just so genius um, because even like she says, there are real people who fight monsters and that's me. And then he says, you can't fight death. Which is, I don't know, we talked about that earlier, but it's like, it's so real. Like that phrase, like, you can't fight death as, like, a child who's just, like, watching it happen around him. Like, again, like, take all the monsters out of this episode. It's a sad reality that some people have to watch this as young children and, like, to sit here and to know that. That's such a real adult concept that a child has to come to grips with so young, being like, you can't fight what's going on. But it's also super, like, accurate to what Buffy needs to hear because we know mm -hmm. that she's blaming herself for Jenny's death and that she's going into this hyperactive mode of, like, I, I, I can take all this burden. I can beat everyone up. I, I'm going to protect everyone. I'm not going to allow Angel to, to, you know, kill anyone else. And it's like, you can't stop death. Like, this isn't your burden to bear. Death is inevitable. Or you may have helped, like, these kids at the end of this episode, but you couldn't help Cecily or whatever, or whatever her cousin's name is, and you couldn't help Jenny. Like, sometimes there are just some people that you can't help. Yeah, and I think that's a hard thing for Buffy in particular to grasp simply because her entire job is to prevent death. You know, but she actually can't fight death itself, even when it comes down to it. She can do the best she can to save people, but that's the harsh reality of her job is she's just not ever going to be able to save everyone. And this is the first time that she's actually having to confront that, you know, from a very personal sense, at least that we've seen on the show. We know that like her, um, her first watcher died and stuff, but yeah. And I, I love that the show goes here. I think this is a very realistic, place to go. And I think that it's also very powerful too. I mean, we're, we're talking about death here and we're having these conversations. And I think that's what sets Buffy apart from any other supernatural show is the fact of how grounded it is and how grounded it makes you feel. Um, and you are so invested in these characters and you care for them. And then having them struggling and wrestling with death is just very real. Giles and Willow find that Dr. Backer has a rap sheet, reprimands for controversial experiments, risky procedures, and a malpractice suit that was dropped suddenly. And then back at the hospital, Dr. Backer's working on stuff in his office, opens the fridge to label some tubes, and then writes it in his book. And then the lobby, Xander is falling asleep when Cordelia comes back, brings him coffee and donuts. 
And Xander looks at her appreciatively but doesn't say anything. And Cordy stays with him. Like, this girl must really care for him. I I don't I don't know what in the world. I mean, she is the best girlfriend, really. I, but I don't know what she's doing with him. I really don't get it. Um, and I told you guys this earlier, but Cordelia brings Xander Krispy Kreme donuts. At the time that this was made, there was only one Krispy Kreme in LA. So the implication was that Cordelia had to drive quite a ways to go get him Krispy Kreme, which is like considered the elite donut. <sighs> she, uh, he doesn't deserve, <laughs> he doesn't deserve her. She's just too good for him. Yeah. I, I agree. And the fact that she stays with him, she doesn't just drop off the donuts and the coffee, but she sits down with him. I mean, girlfriend of the year, man. All right. So Dr. Backer passes Buffy on his way to the room with the kids. There's a close-up of him looking super sus as he's inserting something into the kid's IV. Then we hear like a sinister cackling and something invisible hits the doctor. Poor Ryan looks terrified. The doctor gets shredded. And then, okay, Buffy was supposed to be trailing this guy. Did she like not hear anything? That, like it took Buffy a long time to get there. And by the time she did, like the guy was like, already dead. It's just, yeah. I feel like she could have been moving a little faster. This also gives me um major freddy vibes too only because in freddy people die in their dreams and so they kind of get like physically you know oh yeah nightmare on elm street yeah freddy krueger mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and this this villain definitely gives me freddy vibes as well but especially this scene i i've never seen it but i've seen clips of it um and i know that they like whatever happens in their dreams happens to their physical bodies and so this really reminded me of it because like he couldn't see the monster but he was still like dying because of it i just had traumatizing for all these kids i just (laughs) i feel for every single kid and also all the child actors in this episode are phenomenal like really really Mm -hmm. good so the next morning in buffy's room and giles comes in looking super sheepish well it looks like you were on to something buffy i know like she doesn't say it even like i know but she was just like i know like, I know I was onto something. Like, believe me. Um, learned that the little girl Tina did die of the fever, but her records showed her improving beforehand. Buffy drops the bomb that Backer is dead. It shows the drawing that Ryan drew of the monster and says that she felt it would mean she can fight it. Giles is all impressed. Is this your work? Like, talking about the picture, like it's some sort of work of art. And she's like, no, like a kid drew it for me. <laughs> They try to work out why it is that Buffy can see it one night, but not the next. When Joyce comes in, the way she enters is so mom-like. It gave me flashbacks. <laughs> She's like, ooh, looks like I interrupted a secret meeting. And everyone's like, <laughs> definitely not. But I mean, to be fair, she really did enter a secret meeting. Yeah, Cordelia's like, ha you sure didn't. <laughs> I know, Cordelia, it just made me laugh because it's like Cordelia, not only is she like doesn't want to lie, but like she's also just genuinely bad at yeah, it. Like, really bad at it. I wonder why she doesn't like lying. Yeah. Joyce tells Buffy that they can that she can go home. Buffy knows she needs to stay to help the kids and says, I think my symptoms are flaring up. And I was like, this is not how hospitals work at all. <laughs> you can't say, I think I'm still feeling sick. And they're like, oh, yeah, you can definitely stay and like, we'll continue to feed you and stuff. No, if you're better, you go home. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Will and Xander back her up. Joyce buys it, says she'll talk to the doctor. <laughs> Giles um, says he'll go find what the monster looks like. 
Buffy's going to go snoop in Backer's office for notes, asks Willow to come help her decipher what she finds. Which I was cracking up because I was like, you know, Willow's the geek of the show, which means that she has to be the geek of everything, not just like one specific thing. She's the computer geek, the science geek, and, you know, learning about witchcraft and all this stuff, not how geeks work. I think, yeah, I think it was just such an earlier, like, 90s thing to be like oh if you're a nerd you're a nerd for everything that just means you're smart you're you know everything stem that's yeah like even if you're good at math that means you're also good at science and you're also good at like and it's like no that's not exactly how it works but i just like how they're like willow was just smart like so we're just gonna give her anything that's smart and she was like the only book smart one yeah could you imagine if Xander's over there like, um, actually, I'm really good at science. And they have like Xander's Day <laughs> or Cordelia or something. <laughs> That'd be so funny. Or like Xander gets like scholarships to like these high-end schools at the end of the series. Yeah, he doesn't like tell He's, anyone. He's like really good at science. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Willow. Oh, yeah. I'm good at medical stuff. Since Xander and I used to play doctor all the time, everyone looks so uncomfortable. Xander's like, ha no, she's being literal. She used to have all these medical volumes and diagnose me and stuff. I didn't have the heart to tell her she was playing it wrong. Willow, wrong. Why? How did you play doctor? And Buffy's like, I never have. And Cordelia's like, mm, like, Buffy, yes, you have. We all know you have. That's why Angel is currently Angelus right now. Giles is like, fascinating though this is. <laughs> they go to leave to research. Xander's on sentry duty. Xander's like, finding who this is takes priority. Cordy, you should go with Giles. <laughs> this scene where Giles is like, why did I have to get like, it just made me laugh so hard because like one, not only is it funny, but two, the fact that like he was reprimanding Cordelia for not having tact earlier. Yeah. But it's also just so... It's so juvenile of him to be like, well, why do I have to go with Cordelia? That it's just so funny. Yeah. Oh, my god. I felt gosh. like I got a glimpse of, like, teenager child. He's like, you'd have the whine in his voice. Why do I have to <laughs> go with Cordelia? I know. I laughed so hard. It was very funny. And then Cordelia, let's go tact guy. The guy that was reprimanding yep. her on tact earlier. Oh, so good. Cordelia is just, like, nailing it this episode. Then that in the hallway that night, Willow and Buffy sneak into Dr. Backer's office. Willow, it's weird going through his things. Looks like he didn't finish his coffee. Guess he won't. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, Buffy's just like, yeah, moving on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Got a job to do. Well, Buffy was like, just another person I didn't save. We're like, stop putting this on yourself, Buffy. Yeah. It's also just sad because, like, it seems like this doctor was, like, actually making a difference for the kids. Yeah. Like, was actually helping them get better. Yeah. Like, that's just so sad. Like, he was doing his job well. <laughs> Gets killed for doing his job well. Yeah. So, Will finds out that Dr. Baxter was trying to inoculate the kids by raising their temperatures to burn the fever out, which is essentially just, like, vaccinating them. He was just trying to vaccinate them. <laughs> And it was starting to work until I know they make it sound so like dramatic. Yeah, we're gonna raise their trying to burn the fever out. It's like no, he's just giving them a vaccine. Also, burning the fever out makes no sense. That's the point of a fever. (laughs) In the library, Cordelia keeps asking what different things do. Wait, what does this one do? Wait, what does this one do? Giles, it asks endless questions of those with whom it's supposed to be working, so that nothing is getting done. Cordelia, boy, there's a demon for everything. 
But it's also so funny because we haven't seen Giles get this annoyed at anyone else except for Xander. Yeah, and Bewitched Bothered and Bewildered. He was like, just go home. Yep. Courtney closes the book. Well, it's not in here and the demon is literally on the cover. <laughs> uh, the book that has like the image of Dirk Kinderstadt on it, it also contains the passage on an unnamed demon belonging to the Brotherhood of Seven that was from the puppet show. It's one of those guys that uh, Sid was trying to defeat. And that's also the exact same episode that Robin Dean wrote, which I thought was kind of a fun little nod. Um, so in Buffy's hospital room, Cordy calls Buffy and says, hey, it's called Der Kinderstadt. And Buffy's like, who is this? Where's Giles? Can you put him on? And then she says, the name means child death. This book says that he feeds off of children by sucking the life out of them. But anyway, afterwards, it looks like they died because they were sick. They realized that it was Derek Kunderstad that killed Tina, and it's probably after the other children, which is why it killed Dr. Backer. He was taking away their food, which sounds so gross. I know. They really made this monster really graphic. They did. They really did. Even the way they're talking about it, like little kids is their food yeah. and stuff. It's it's very traumatizing. Yeah. Giles finds a picture of how it kills Cordelia. Ew. Why do I let you guys drag me into this stuff? Leaves the room while Giles comes in and tells her that the monster sits on the child, pinning them down while it sucks the life out of them. It must be horrifying for the victim. Aww. It's like every child's nightmare. Yep. Buffy has flashbacks of her cousin lying in the bed while screaming. I hate the scene. Willow sees Buffy's face and intuitively knows like something's going on and hangs up the phone for her. I really appreciate like the look on Willow's face this entire time. She's she's very much watching Buffy. And kind of gauging where she's at emotionally. It's, mm -hmm. it's really sweet. They figure out that the fever was the only way that Buffy was ab actually able to see Dare Kinderstad. And that's why the kids could see it. So they go to Dr. Backer's office. Buffy sees the vials with the virus. Willow begs her to think about it. Buffy, I have lots of thoughts. Buffy grabs the vial and goes to drink it before Willow stops her and tells her she will need to dilute it or it will kill her. Buffy, that's 100% pure. It will kill you in an instant. Buffy, oh, they really should put that on the label. <laughs> Which, okay, she already had the flu. Taking it, like, getting mm -hmm. it again is not going to get her sick because her she already has antibodies. Like, oh, okay, anyway. Also, you can't just drink the flu. <laughs> but 107 degree temperature, I'm like, can we make it a little bit more realistic? Like, 107? <laughs> yeah. Come on, you guys. She would be unmovable. She wouldn't be able to walk around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the fact that she's like going to drink the virus and dilute it with water, yeah. like, no, that's not how it works. I know. Stomach, that's not how it works. Your stomach kills everything. Like, <laughs> ah, Buffy, here's to my health. In the hallway, Willow's supporting Buffy. I'm not so sure this is a good idea. They make it to the kids' ward, but the kids are gone. And then we have a scene where we see the kids running in the basement entrance that was conveniently in their room. Like, what the heck? I think this is interesting that the kids decide to take it into their own hands because nobody is believing them. The adults won't listen to them. The adults don't trust them. So the kids feel like they have to protect themselves. And I think, again, the metaphor is just really good because it's that's what happens in real life, you know? Buffy can't think clearly, sees Derek Kinderstad appear in the room. The graphics for him appearing is actually really good. Yes! I agree. It was it's terrifying. Like, mm -hmm. I was watching it, so I was like, man, he's creepy. Yeah, they did a really good job with it. And he looks down at the empty beds, then looks at Buffy and, like, tips his hat, and then he goes directly to the basement. So I was like, okay, if 
you knew they were in the basement. Why were you looking in their beds? Like, I, there's just so much about this episode I just don't understand. I Well, the way that I interpret it is that he is primarily because he feeds from his eyes that he primarily focuses on a sense of smell. Mm. And so he's probably following the smell of the kids. So they would have been heavily concentrated in the room because that's where they sleep and stayed. And then eventually when he found out, okay, the kids aren't in here, then he would have followed the next fresh trail, which would be down the basement. He also, like when he was walking in the basement, he wasn't walking straight. He was kind of leaning against the wall. And so I think he doesn't see it very well, kind of like what Leah said, but he also was kind of like feeling things out. So I think it was like him kind of maybe smelling things or just like his senses aren't that great. But also I kind of viewed it as he kind of lives in the basement-ish and then comes up. And so I think he kind of went up and was like, oh, the kids aren't here. I'm going to go back into the basement. And then maybe Leah's thing of like, oh, he smelled the kids and then followed that trail. Yeah. Either way, like, uber terrifying. Like, the way that the actor moves his hands and just, like, slowly – he doesn't do, like, very uh, fast movements. He does very slow ones, which I think make him slightly creepier. He's also hecka tall. So when he was, like, fighting Buffy, I was like, oh, the fact that he's so <laughs> freakishly tall was the scariest part for me. I'm like, he's, like, lanky and, like, yeah, I can't. Yeah. So Buffy tries to break into the room. The door is locked. Okay, why did the kids ward – have a lock on the door. There are so many questions. Dr. Wilkinson appears, tries to take her back to bed. Buffy pushes her off. <laughs> Willow's like, I'm sorry. Um, the doctor calls security. The guard goes to grab them. And Buffy's like looking at Willow, like, help me out. Willow's like, frogs, frogs, get them off of me, which is hilarious because in What's My Line Part 1, Willow tells Giles that she has frog fear when she wakes up from that dream. I like that they tie that in there. Xander's in the lobby when he spots Buffy not looking too great. Together, they head towards the basement. Um, Dare Kinderstadt is creeping along the very leaky basement. Like, that can't be good for the foundation of the hospital. I don't understand why it's a leaky basement. This hospital is like one lawsuit away <laughs> from, like, just crumbling. Like, the sheer fact of, like, what do they what they do with the children's ward. Like, this basement. Like, I have so many, like, health code violations just, like, popping up in my head. I'm like, this hospital is about to crumble and fall. If there was any hospital that I would be like, yeah, this could be the one you blow up inside the dark night, it would be this one. I'd right. Be like, Go ahead and take this one down. Right. Yeah, literally. We don't need this one. <laughs> I mean, and I know it's like on top of a home mouth, but it's like, guys, come on. You got to put a little effort. We know that there's a lot of people who have to go to the hospital. Well, I was here. about to say, I was like, this place is probably jam-packed with people weekly, so you need to make it top notch. <laughs> we we know you're uh, making your quota of patients. Yeah, for real. Yeah, exactly. Well, and you know, they've probably got a serious mold problem with all the water down there. And if the kid's door... Or like their room is connected to the basement. The mold, there's probably mold down there. And the mold fumes is probably seeping into where the kids are. So it's no wonder the kids are sick and not getting better. Like It's like the, yeah, the worst hospital in the world. Like making all the kids worse. It's really bad. And honestly, like with all the exposed piping and other things like that, it's probably connected to the sewers. And that's where they were at is somewhere in the sewers. But yeah, it's. There's a lot of health code violations going on there for sure. We talk more about like this awful hospital than anything else. We're like, man, <laughs> it sucks. In the stairwell, Xander's worried that Buffy doesn't know how to kill the monster. Buffy's like, I thought I might try violence. Xander, solid call. I know. Most of the monsters kind of just die with like anything that would normally kill anyone yeah, else. Yeah, and as long as she can like touch it and it's solid, you know, she can kill it. 
The kids are terrified. Ryan is being thrown around and pinned down. The poor dude was trying to rescue the other kids and the monster comes and grabs him. This is terrifying. The monster has him pinned down and has like his eyeballs come out of his socket and attached to the kid's head. What sick freak came up with this monster? Joss Whedon? <clears throat> yeah, not not the biggest fan. But I also understand what the purpose of it is supposed to be like him sucking the life out of them. That's what it's supposed to be like. And you gotta make it creepy, but I'm like, uh, I could live my whole life without this image. Yeah. And Thank you very much. I mean, it was always it's always hard to see little kids in peril, but especially now as a mom yeah. too. I'm just like, I can't I can't watch too much of it. Um, it is super satisfying when Buffy shows up and whacks him on the head. You make me sick. <laughs> the puns were excellent. Here's to my health. You yeah. make me sick. Xander shows up, grabs Ryan, gets the kids out of there. Buffy's getting pretty beat up and she's having trouble hitting him directly. And Xander shows up. I love that that scene where they show him looking and it just looks like Buffy is like hitting air. Derek Kinderstad pins Buffy down. His eyes start to come out. Buffy just reaches up and snaps his neck, which it is satisfying that she kills him, but I felt like it was slightly anticlimactic, but I guess there's not really much that she can do. I mean, yep. she's sick, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's true. I just feel like it wasn't up to par to the fight scenes we've been witnessing yeah. in season two. Yeah. I was like, oh, we just started the fight. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Buffy. Kill him. Kill him more. Kill death more. I know. <laughs> She stares at the body. Xander asks if she's okay. Actually, I think I'm starting to feel better. And I think the whole idea is, you know, she's feeling a little bit more, maybe not necessarily in control, but the she has a little bit of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Closure. She has a little bit of closure. She killed the thing that killed her cousin. I think what is hard for this episode is like, the reveal about the whole hospital thing and her cousin feels a little ham-fisted, like they decided to just throw this in for this episode. And it's like, okay, so we have never heard of this before. Suddenly she has this fear and like she's over it by the end of the episode. It just – it. I will say I like this episode a lot, but I do think that one thing feels – it feels a little like unnecessary. Like the story of her cousin does yes, feel a little agreed. unnecessary. Simply because it's like I feel like – the idea of a monster who eats children is scary sure. enough. Like, we didn't need to have some backstory drama, like, uh, like aligned with it. It doesn't take away, but I do feel like it, it, it took time off the screen that I feel like could have been dedicated to, like, conversations or, like, things like that that would have furthered the story. I don't think it had to be directly correlated to her own trauma. I think that it would have made it the same impact as if she was in the hospital maybe for, like, a week of the flu as a child, and she thought she saw that, um, or death or whatever, like go in and out of different rooms, and then that child ended up dying. And so she had that fear of like, is it going to happen to me? But I think the fact that they kind of made it like, it was like her cousin, she has this trauma of witnessing her cousin die. It was like, that feels like a pretty big point in your life that I feel like we would have heard be about. brought up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We would have heard about or even just been like, oh, I don't want to go to the hospital in season one or whatever. And I feel like it would have made it kind of like more creepier and sinister and a lot more like um, build up factor, kind of like what happened in the uh, – <laughs> The Twilight Zone episode where it's like they, she witnesses a lot of things happening. So the whole buildup is terrifying. 
But then it's like when you have that whole huge big trauma thing with your cousin, it seems very shoehorned in an episode. Yeah. I, I would have liked it maybe if we'd heard about it when she was in um, Nightmares and the girl was like, you know, the girl that was put in the hospital from like the ugly man. If, you know, there was a conversation between her and Giles as she was coming in, like, I hate hospitals. And he's like, why? And then she says, my cousin died. And then this one would have been like a really cool tie-in. And we would have felt like a little bit more emotionally invested. Like this is something Buffy's really struggled with, you know? Um, Yeah. It just kind of felt like suddenly because they had this whole backstory with Celia, we're like, oh, okay. Like, I feel like Buffy's struggling with enough on her own, you know? So, yeah, that's that's a really good point. Um, back at home, Buffy's in bed. Joyce made Buffy a PB&J without the crust and two parts orange, one part grapefruit, Joyce. I measured it exactly. <laughs> They're trying to make Buffy as innocent and childlike as possible. There's a huge contrast between death and childhood innocence, as we've talked before. And I think, again, they're trying to show that like what Buffy does every day is deal with death, yet at the same time, she's still this innocent 17-year-old. Um, the camera pans over to see Xander and Willow in bed with her as they watch TV. Buffy, oh, mom, I wanted crunchy peanut butter. And I said extra jelly, which is very – like my five-year-old does this all the time. <laughs> but it's also like – I think it's funny that like Joyce is taking care of like not only Buffy, <laughs> but also like Xander and Willow. And Willow even has that line where she's like, it's just because I'm comfortable. <laughs> it's a very cute scene. Yeah. And Xander's like, oh, oh, oh. And another bag of cheesy chips. And she's like, um, you ate the last one. He's like, nah, there's another bag hidden behind the raisins. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, though, this scene feels very reminiscent of season one when they would usually end on, like, a happier note. Like, we haven't had an episode that ends on a really, yes. like, happy gang note yes. in a while. Yeah, seeing them do, like, just normal stuff. I think it's it's needed to see those kinds of things. <laughs> Your mom's trying to bogart on the cheesy chips. What's that all about? <laughs> and Joyce is, like, breathing in, like, long-suffering sigh. I'm on it. <laughs> Joyce comes back in with a card from the mail. She says it's from Ryan. He has a new drawing of Buffy standing over a bloody Dare Kinderstad. Oh, he drew you a picture. How nice. <laughs> it's it's an enjoyable episode to just kind of watch as just like episode candy. Like it's just fun, except for, you know, the children that are dying. Um, But it's got some like really great character moments and stuff. But I do think it is a weaker episode when it comes to like the season as a whole. I will say, though, it is nice having an episode that is not so heavy yes. on Buffy and Angel because it's like sometimes we do need a breather, especially after an episode like Passion. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love I love the insights we get into Cordelia, into Xander, um, yeah, and Cordelia especially I think is just phenomenal. Really, really good in this episode. But, yep. All right, so that's Killed by Death. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Please let us know what you guys think of it. Let us know whether you think Derek Kinderstadt is the creepiest monster we've seen yet. And I'm curious if any of you saw this episode as a kid, if it gave you nightmares, because I feel like if I had seen it as a kid, it definitely would have given me some bad dreams. Um, let us know what you guys think of the themes. Do you enjoy this episode or is it one that you normally skip on your rewatches? We want to know. As always, you guys can find us on Instagram at Becoming Buffy Podcast or you can email us at becomingbuffypodcast at gmail.com. We love to hear from you guys. And don't forget to stick around for our spoiler section this week that is um, attached to this episode. And next week we will be on I Only Have Eyes for You. So with that, guys, we will see you next week.
Hey guys, welcome back to Becoming Buffy, our spoiler section for Killed by Death. Um, I actually, I really, I think we talked about this in the spoiler-free section, but like, I really enjoy this episode as a standalone creepy episode, as one that I can just watch and be like, ooh, the villain is really terrifying and stuff. And I genuinely think that Dare Kinderstadt is one of the most terrifying villains in all of the Buffyverse. What do you guys think? You know which other one he kind of reminds me of? Is um the guy in season seven who Gnarls Gnarls like skin. They kind of remind me of each other, but I think it's like him and then I there's another one that I can't remember, but like those ones I'd probably say are like top three. I'd prefer to have my life sucked out through his eyeballs than be paralyzed <laughs> and watch him like peel off my skin and then go be like like I can't I I literally and his like he's green and all like he crouches and sings and he has like huge snout like the gnarl is like i can't like i don't like the gentleman either like they're i think they were horrifying to me the first like three times i watched the episode and then as i've rewatched it it's more more of one of those like you kind of get used to their creepiness and don't get me wrong i don't want my heart you know cut open and everything. That yeah, we're, we're picking from the worst of like the worst situations. Yes, but like <laughs> my my personal, I would not want to have the gnarl just because it's like you cannot move. Like that seems like horrifying. Like oh my gosh, that's awful. Yeah, for me, the gnarl is probably like the creepiest villain mm-hmm. out of all seven seasons. I I know everyone talks about how creepy Hush is. For me, Hush isn't really that scary. I think it's just because it, you have that beautiful score, which is also really creepy. I don't know. Maybe every time I watch it, I'm just so enamored by how well the filmmaking is, the cinematography yeah, and everything and the lack of dialogue that I'm not really thinking about how creepy it is. I, like, I understand in, like in theory how it's kind of scary. They're floating. But yeah, I agree with you, Tabs. The Gnarl for me is by far the creepiest one. And I think the second most creepy is Dare Kinderstad. I agree. Which would this would be a great time to tell you all that this is the spoiler section. There will be spoilers <laughs> <laughs> for oh, no. all seven seasons. It's all good. They should know it by this point. This is like what our 42nd episode that we've ever done. People some should know the drill there. by now. Could you imagine some random person's like, hey, I'm going to click on this uh, one. See what this is. What's a gnarl? <laughs> oh, yeah. What's a gnarl? What do I have to look forward to in season seven? Don't worry. You will still be thoroughly creeped out by the time we get to season seven. But this is spoilers, obviously, for Buffy, but also for the show Angel. If we have already spoiled things for you in the first, then you know, three minutes. that's not of- our fault. <laughs> that's you on know. you. <laughs> exactly. But just an FYI for you guys. One of the things that I really was, like, dying to talk about pretty much throughout the entire of the spoiler-free section was normal again. And I know we mentioned, I think, in Ted. Yes, 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 and yes, a few yes, others. yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Take it away, Tebs. Uh, 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 I mean – you say things a lot more eloquently than I do. So I'm just going to agree with all of your points. So you can go ahead. <laughs> okay, cool. We don't need to talk about it. Moving on. No, um, I was thinking a lot about how like, you know, she's talking about vampires to Joyce, but then also Buffy's fear mm-hmm. of hospitals and stuff. And I really, really wish that, I mean, obviously they did not have normal again in mind when they wrote this, but I really wish we'd had some mention of Celia, maybe when she was in normal again, maybe we actually met her cousin or some, like in the alternate universe, like, like heard about something that happened traumatically with her cousin there. I wish that like, um, I, and I, I think this kind of correlates a lot with normal again, though, just the fact that she's afraid of hospitals, like, and the fact that like, she's talking about vampires, like, 
her mom knows that she already like kind of deals with this kind of stuff. And it, like I said, in the spoiler free section, this is the third time now that we've heard Buffy talk about vampires to her mom. And I think an argument can be made and we'll get to this in becoming part two, but I think an argument could be made that Joyce's response to Buffy saying I'm a vampire slayer could go either way as in Joyce has never heard her say this before or Joyce has heard her say this before. And I think there's a pattern of Joyce suppressing so much, especially mm-hmm. that we've seen in the first two seasons that I don't know that it's completely out of the realm of possibility that Joyce was just suppressing her saying that she was a vampire slayer and um, the fact that she went to the hospital and all that stuff happened with the psych ward. But I'm curious I- about your guys' thoughts. I totally agree. I think that this episode could have been so much better if they had thought about the episodes prior and the episodes afterwards that could make this episode really pivotal in the whole Buffyverse because I think normal again would be even more impactful if we've had hints. Kind of like I I think of um, in season seven, there was a few episodes where they purposely didn't have Giles touch anyone because they were going to make it seem like he was part of the first. And so when you're like, oh, crap. I didn't even notice he hasn't touched anyone. He could be, you know, non-corporeal. What is that word? Non-corporeal. Yes, that. Um, (laughs) And so I was thinking, like, if they had made this episode tie in, if they had brought up the fact that she doesn't like hospitals in Nightmares, and then brought up the fact and. And normal again that they're like, oh, we've seen you react this way about vampires or whatever and then brought up killed by death. Then it's like, oh, crap, like this whole like other storyline of Buffy could be real. Whereas when you watch normal again, you're like, oh, this is clearly just like an episode where they're just going to throw that in. But I think it could have been so much more impactful if they had thought about things and tied things in. And then you're like, oh, we could actually talk about this. This actually could be a real thing. I agree with Tabby. Like, I love that episode as a standalone episode. I think it's such a cool concept. But I will say, because there hadn't been much hints prior to that episode, it kind of like, watching it, I was like, I know this isn't real. Like, I know that Buffy's a real person and that, you know, she is a real vampire slayer and all this blah, 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 blah. But if there had been little hints that I'd seen, I would have been like, oh, shoot. All that being said, this is not to grapple on normal again, but I will say I, I agree with both of you. This episode really, really reminded me of normal again. Just the creepy hospital vibes, the like, um, like the fact that Joyce is actually in it so much. Um, just like random stuff that I was like, hmm, feels very eerie. Yeah, and I think it it does make sense if you think about it, like Joyce having Buffy committed, if Buffy's continuously bringing up this vampire stuff, and it also kind of canonically makes sense for Joyce to start suppressing if she's just like, I don't want to have her committed again. All right, I'm just going to pretend she didn't say that. Um, But I think that, yeah, I agree with you. I think normal again should have had a little bit more hints, but I'm also thinking about in this episode too, I think there should have been more hints that Buffy didn't like hospitals. And I think that it would have been nice if they carried that over later on into future seasons and episodes because like we spend a lot of time in the hospital in season five with Joyce with all that stuff going on with her and it's never really brought up again that Buffy hates hospitals so the only thing that I can the only conclusion that I can come to is that Buffy completely conquered her fear of hospitals after she killed Derek Kinderstad but I wish like there was some like little mention of it because it went from like this 
utterly traumatic thing that happened to Buffy when she was a child. Like, we're talking traumatic, traumatic, to like never ever mention again in the entirety of the Buffyverse. It seems like such a point. Why put that in there? It seems pointless, you know? Like, that should be something that we like deal with. And it kind of makes me wish that it hadn't been something that was so traumatizing for when she was younger because they never deal with the fallout. I think I mentioned this in the non-spoiler section, but I think the entire storyline of her cousin and all that was completely unnecessary. You can hate hospitals without literally having someone die in front of you. Like, I hate hospitals and I've never experienced anything that traumatic in a hospital. Like, I just wish that it was something where she was just kind of like, oh, like, hospitals remind me of death. You know, or like, oh, I don't like needles or something like it didn't have to be like, oh, my gosh, I saw my cousin brutally murdered in front of me when I was a child. Like it felt a little unnecessary and extreme, kind of like what Sarah was saying for the fact that it just wasn't followed up after this episode. What is with this show and like throwing in traumatic events and then not dealing with the repercussions afterwards? I'm like, if you're going to go there understand what you're opening up and give us some resolution and or some consistency in the show because this is not just like some like random thing that's like oh that was a little bit horrifying but it was like if i experienced that like i would never ever want to step foot in a hospital i would have to go to therapy like there's so many things that you would have to do and it's like come on show know what you're putting out there and realize what it's gonna have to take to like talk about it and deal with it Yeah, and I think the show does a good job of dealing with some trauma, but not all trauma. I think at some point, like, the writers kind of forget, like, if this happened to a normal person, that we would actually have to deal with it or else, like, we would not be normal people, you know? But, like, Um, it's Buffy. She'll be fine. Yeah, I know, right? By the end of the series, she's like – her through every single thing anyone could ever go through. (laughs) Right. Xander, no. Xander's fine. He's, you know, doesn't need consequences for his actions. Really? Um, But, like, kind of going off what you were saying earlier, Leah, about how there kind of being no point to Celia being in the story at all, the whole point that they had – the whole reason that they were trying to have Celia in there was to be, like, Buffy's, like, working through something, like, a past fear and conquering that fear and feeling better. Well, I feel like that metaphor can still be used with she's afraid of – or she's not afraid, but she's – yeah, I guess she's afraid. She's kind of afraid of – her powerlessness like she's over here watching jenny die like i feel like all of the stuff she's going through with angel is potent enough for us to get the idea of when she snaps dare kinderstad's neck we're like okay this is buffy needing something to work out to feel that she has some bit of control again and we don't need to like oh she has closure now with what happened with this character that we just like were introduced to in this episode you know like it just it fell i think that's why the ending of this episode satisfactory as it was to see him die after hurting those kids it's supposed to feel like this great moment but it's not quite that so yeah it was just like i didn't feel like celia was fully necessary at all and i didn't feel like buffy needed an added childhood trauma on top of you know like her boyfriend turning into a demon and you know her being a slayer and her parents divorcing i think buffy has enough trauma to work through without having to add in a cousin but that's just me. Joss is over there like, never enough trauma, especially for our female characters. I know. It's just like, I don't know. It just was a little dramatic. Like, that's all I'm going to say is that it was just, (laughs) it was a tad bit dramatic. And Buffy was already dealing so much with Angel that it was like, she doesn't need another thing on her plate. Like, you really could have just made this about her trying to get over 
like Angel and Jenny's death, and we all would have been like, "Wow, okay, seems yeah. fair." Buffy's really well adjusted for someone that watched her eight year old cousin screaming in agony, and yeah, I mean, like it wasn't just like she died peacefully in her sleep, you know. Anyway, okay, moving right along. <laughs> um, one of the things that I noted too, kind of in the theme of death, is they do a lot of long, continuous shots in the episode The Body as well. And they did that long, continuous shot when you first come into the hospital in this episode. Um, and I also noted a lot of like correlations and similarities with um, The Body and also with Forever, the episode right after The Body. And Tabby, you mentioned this in the spoilers free section. You talked about how throughout the Buffyverse, they do have a lot of episodes that come after um, like a big episode that's about death that kind of deals with the aftermath of that. And I think you, we were talking about how this episode and really the next um, episode as well, I only have eyes for you, are just the characters dealing with Jenny's death. And it reminds me a lot of the body in forever. Okay, so we know that Buffy is technically part demon, right? So, yes. yes. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> I always, you're like my fact checker. Um, <laughs> yes. Yes, we do. So I have a question. Would they be able to tell that there was a difference in her blood or something in like blood work or tests like that? Because she is technically part demon. Would that change anything? So my guess is probably no, simply because... The doctors are um, only – they're not, like, running blood work tests. They're only giving her an IV. And since she is human, she probably – her body responds just fine to human blood if she needed a transfusion or whatever. No, I mean, like, um, if they actually tested her blood, like, would they oh, be able to, Oh, you're to asking like hypothetically? The, yeah, hypothetically. Because gotcha. I don't think that they would find anything because they'd have to actually, like, test. And, do, and, like, they didn't – they weren't doing tests. They were just taking it, like <laughs> – so, but I think that, like, I don't know. I just feel like there might be something different about her blood. There might be, but I feel like in season seven, they don't explicitly say she's part demon. They say she has the essence of demon. Yeah, but also, isn't there something special about Slayer's blood? Like, don't they mention that multiple times that, like, vampires, like, crave Slayer's blood? Yeah, it's like blood? an aphrodisiac or yeah. something like that. Yeah. There's something, like, super alluring about Slayer's blood. Yeah, I don't know. That's a really good question. It's quite possible that if they actually like somebody was to like draw her blood and study it, that it would look different than regular human blood on top of the fact that she's she's got superhuman strength. So her cells probably um, heal faster than regular yeah. cells. Like, And so the, it it wouldn't be a huge stretch to think that her blood behaved differently as well. Um, it's just interesting because it's like, okay, so if slayers are – but if slayers are human – and vampires can drink their blood. Vampires don't drink other demons' blood. So there's mm. enough human in her blood so that she would still appear very human if the doctor were to test her blood too. So I don't think that there's – it's po quite possible that the demon blood doesn't affect her blood, but it affects enough of her like healing abilities to where that would show up funky on a blood test. I don't know. If we break it down, it probably falls apart really fast simply because it's yeah. a fictional universe. But that's a really good question. I feel like I didn't answer it, but I just. Gave I mean, I don't questions. know if there is. I don't know if there is an answer, but I just was thinking about that the other day, and I was like, "Hmm, like I wonder what 
like that would look like. Yeah, I don't know. Um, okay, so let's talk about Xander for a minute. <laughs> so the moment where he says to Angel, to? Angelus, yes, we do actually. We have some like No, I'm just kidding. I, I actually thought about this moment. Um, so I in the outtakes of the spoiler-free section, I actually spoiled this and I was like, oh, dang it. Um but when he has that whole dialogue with Angel when he comes into the hospital mm-hmm. and it this sets up like the motivation for like kick his ass and becoming part two. Mm-hmm. And I again I, I feel like I've said this for the past couple episodes, like I feel like there's a few episodes in the beginning seasons. There's maybe like three or four that I've only seen like twice maybe three times but it's been a long time i usually skip them on my rewatches and so this episode i just forgot so many details about it so when they talked i was like oh my gosh like this makes that not that that ending scene or that scene in becoming part two wasn't like unwarranted because we definitely see him loathing angel for a while but i feel like especially this episode was like a nail in the coffin where he was like i hate this dude with everything in me but it's like this feels like a conversation where he's like, oh, it must kill you that I got the first. It feels like a a nah, current nah, nah, boyfriend nah, nah. talking to a ex-boyfriend. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, why is Xander getting so angry about this when he's dating somebody? I'm just like, you have no reason to feel jealous. I just like – it's such a, he's such a boy, but I don't know. I, I do appreciate the dialogue only because it makes becoming part two – especially since they're only like three episodes away and makes it even more like, uh, of course, like it makes sense. Um, I like that they put it in there though. I thought it was so interesting how he was like, you're going to die and I'm going to be there. It was kind of like foreshadowing to the fact that like he literally is the reason why he dies. Like because Mm -hmm. of him, Angel never gets saved, you know, in this season, obviously. Not to spoil anything for anyone. I mean, it is the spoiler section. That's what we do here. (laughs) But I just mean like, it's just so funny because like, I don't think in this moment he means like, I'm going to make it happen, but he really makes it happen, you know? Yeah. No, that's a good point. It also kind of was like a little bit eye-opening for me when I saw it because I forget about this interaction a lot. And I was like, did Xander not tell Buffy about Willow's spell because he's angry that Angel slept with her first. Is that – it kind of changes a little bit of his motivations in becoming part two instead of like, oh, I just hate Angel. I think that's definitely part of it. It was like, oh, is he like salty and like angry and jealous and all this other stuff? Like is it all like wrapped up in like jealousy over Buffy sleeping with him first and like all this other – or sleeping with him first, but like sleeping with him and Angel and not Xander? I mean, there's no way it's going to reflect well on Xander. But I was like, holy crap, is Xander that petty to be like, well, I'm going to not tell Buffy about Willow's spell simply because I'm still mad that he like taunted me about sleeping with Buffy? I think it's a little bit of everything. I think he's – Angry at the fact that Angela's got somewhere that, you know, Xander hasn't even gotten close to. I think he's angry at the fact that, like, Buffy loves Angel despite him being Angelus. I think that he's angry at the fact that Angelus, like, pushes his buttons. I think he's angry at the fact that Angel kind of, like, 
taunts his masculinity. Like, I think there's so many, and on top of all that, he's a vampire. Like, I think there's so many things that Xander doesn't like about, like, Angel, and I think very few of them are valid. Yeah, no, I agree. I think he's valid in the sense of, like, up until now, he's been told that, you know, vampires are just demons and nothing is left of your friend. Like, he's still, you know, chip on his shoulder because of Jesse. And that that's another thing. I... I think that Xander would be a much more sympathetic character if they brought up Jesse more often. If they brought up Jesse and how he's like reeling with that, then I think that it would make us all kind of go, oh yeah, his best friend like got killed and turned into a vampire. And that's traumatic for him. But even though we know that like his best friend died, or I guess male best friend, because I think Will is his best friend. Um, even though we know that Jesse died and we saw it happen. There wasn't enough time for us to see the bond between Jesse and Xander. And Jesse's literally never mentioned again. So how in the world are we supposed to think anything other than Xander's just, you know, being petty because he wants Buffy, you know? So I think they had a missed opportunity. And if they had brought Jesse up more, maybe it would have made Xander slightly more sympathetic, you know? Speaking of Xander, I read this really good comment Um it was actually on YouTube on Passion of the Nerds uh, comment section. I like to go and see what people say because sometimes they have like, really good insights. And the user is uh, Satanel's Pumpkin, I think is what it is. <laughs> it's always something random, but it's a username. Um, but this is what they say about Xander. They said, in all fairness to the Xander bashing, the character does have a great many cringe-worthy moments and lines. If he was just supposed to be their lone guy friend with no deeper subtext, his off-color commentary alone would justify writing him out of half of the episodes. But with his added role as a stand-in for Buffy's heart, it all fits. He is all of Buffy's brash, reckless, impulsive desires squeezed into one character. When he says seemingly idiotic lines like, if they hurt Willow, I'll kill you, the takeaway is that Buffy is probably thinking, if Willow dies, I'll never forgive myself. When he argues or fights with Buffy during a scene where she struggles to keep up a stoic face, that's the clue to us that her heart is breaking on the inside. And I thought that was a really interesting take on the whole, like, heart mind, spirit, and um, arm or hand thing. And the like, if we're viewing Xander as the heart of the gang, but then also kind of like as representative of Buffy's heart, not all the time, because I think that can be taken in weird ways. But if we're thinking like sometimes Xander, he just kind of like speaks his mind like he has no filter, but and Buffy kind of holds it all in. I think of in Passion where he talks about how like, you know, somebody's got to go kill Angelus. And he's like, I, I said, faster pussycat, kill, kill or whatever. And Buffy goes, no, he's right. I think they use Xander a lot of times to verbalize what Buffy is thinking in moments like that. And I thought that was a really interesting take. That's really interesting because even since we just talked about becoming part two, I feel like maybe that's what Buffy needed to hear to like kick his ass that she could muster up the courage to go and fight her ex-boyfriend. Maybe that's what like her heart was saying. Yeah. Maybe she needed the extra push to be like, I need to go and kill him because maybe she was struggling. Mm. So like, even though like that's a sucky thing, like that's what she needed to hear. I don't know. 
yeah, it's quite possible. Again, it's not to excuse Xander's behavior. And like right. that's not to say that everything that comes out of his mouth is supposed to be representative of Buffy's thoughts. But I think it's in, in pivotal moments like that when Xander says something and Buffy stays quietly or stays quiet. I think that it, I'm now going to like look at what Xander says a little bit differently because he is written to be a specific part of the that's game. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. I thought that was really clever. Okay, so – I just want to highlight Cordelia when she says tact is just not saying true stuff. I'll pass. I feel like that statement right there is like everything you need to know about Cordelia. I feel like that's like her mission statement, if you will. Agreed. Um, But I was thinking about uh, on Angel. It's the episode that Oz comes in and brings him the ring. I don't remember what the episode is called. It's also the episode with Spike. Um, Oz says, your buddy Spike dug up Sunnydale looking for it, the ring. He got a fistful of Buffy and left it behind. She wanted to be sure it was in good hands. Angel says, so she sent you, Oz. I was heading this way. Cordelia, and she didn't even send a note? Wow. That's really dot, dot, dot. Angel looks at her and she says, this is one of those times when I should just shy away from the topic, isn't it? But like, that's character growth. That's character growth for Cordelia. Like, she's recognizing that there is a time and a place for tact. Like, you don't necessarily have to, like, change what you're saying. You just ha- just don't have to say it. You don't always have to verbalize what you're thinking. Um, and I just – I wanted to highlight Cordelia's wonderful character arc. <laughs> um, also, when they're in the library and Willow and Giles are talking about how um, Cordelia might be hermetically insensitive, kind of like carrying over from the last thing I said. He says, but she may also be right. Death and disease are things, possibly the only things that Buffy cannot fight. It's only natural for her to try to create a defeatable opponent. I feel like that is something that is carried over throughout the rest of the season, specifically season five, when, you know, we have the body and Anya says, death, it's mortal and stupid. And I just, I really kind of got flashbacks of Anya's little speech there where she talks about how she doesn't understand death and how it's just, it's dumb and it shouldn't happen. I just really love how this show does death. I think it does it very respectfully and has a weight to it, but at the same time, like it just is, it's so realistic too, without being over the top. Yeah. I, I was telling Sarah and Tabby earlier that uh, I just got done listening to our, um, our passion episode and uh we do talk a lot about how like death is handled in the show and i think that they just treat it very beautifully um yeah i'm just always really impressed with that um okay so we actually have a question from a listener and even though it doesn't necessarily tie directly into this episode it's kind of carryover from um passion and we address this question a little bit the spoiler section for passion but i feel like um there's a little bit more depth that we can go into. Um, so she says, do you guys think that Angel and Angelus are two separate entities sharing the same body or is it all the same person just with and without a soul? Do you think that Angel should be held responsible for Angelus's actions or not? I'm really undecided. I'm, in the earlier seasons, it's really easy to separate the two, but as the lines become more blurred later on and we go into Angel the series, I think that Angel is meant to be held accountable for Angelus, but I don't know. It's very bizarre for me and I feel like the fandom is also very divided about this. What do you guys think? I, which is so funny that I just re-listened to like the passion episode because we really talk about like mm-hmm. what does not having a soul and having a soul look like? It Does it mean you become a different person or is it you just a more devious version of you? Like 
And so I think that that question is kind of like a two-parter because like, yes, I do think that it is the same person just with and without morality, but I don't think that Angel should have to be held accountable for Angelus's actions because Angel has no free will when it, mm. when Angelus is in control. Do I think that people have every right, like, not to be, want to be around Angel or not trust Angel? Absolutely. But I don't think that they should punish him or take things out on him that Angelus did. I really hate that you asked me that question. Um, <laughs> it's hard. It's I'm a really hard question. I'm really offended by that question. Um, <laughs> because I saw that comment and I've been festering on it for like days and I just don't know the answer only because I have an answer that I tend to lean towards, but the show is so inconsistent with that answer. And so it makes it so so hard as a fan to like watch the show and see it handled differently with two different characters. Like they really just had a favorite when it came to it and they just were not consistent when it came to like past stuff, when it came to uh, insult Spike and insult Angel and then going about their redemption very differently. And it's like, I, I think Angel and Angels are the same person. Uh, I think even Angel would agree with that. Like even in um, Doppelgangland, he talks about how he kind of like alludes to the fact that the personality is the same just without a soul when it came to Vampire Willow. Um, and so I think that it, even if you look at like in Passion, Willow says like you're still – all that he thinks about. Like Angel and Angelus are both obsessed with Buffy, but just for very different reasons. They have the same personality, same tendencies, just Angelus has zero remorse, zero humanity, everything that is awful about what Angel could allow himself to be. Angel has a soul, therefore he has a conscience and morals, so he feels guilty about it. He I think a lot of it he puts it on himself, but it's also because he has a curse. So he doesn't allow himself to move on from his past. Um, do I think he should allow himself to feel that much? No, but I think he has to because he's so scared of not having or of having a moment of happiness and then going back to Angelus. Um, but then you look at Spike and it's completely different. So I don't know. I I go back and forth. I want to say they're the same only because I see that very much so in Angel and Angelus because I think, oh my gosh, I'm really decided to murder ever, everyone's, you know, opinion of me today. Um, but like, <laughs> I, I really feel like Angel's character, Angel and Angelus' character is way more three-dimensional sometimes than Spike. Um, and this is coming from somebody who loves Spike. Don't get me wrong. I think he's so funny. I really enjoy him on my screen. Like, I really love Spike so much. Um, I just think that there's very few differences between Insold and Soulless Spike. And so I think it becomes very confusing with that question when you look at both of them differently. So I think that – and Leia makes a really good point point she goes i think that we need to look at spike and angel separately and when we're asking this question because 
the more that I watch the show and the more I'm discussing this, and again, I think this is going to be one of those questions that we're going to be asking for the rest of the time that we do the, the Buffy podcast. I think we're going to be talking about, okay, what does it look like? What is their interpretation in this episode? What's going on? I think that the the conclusion I'm coming to is that personality and who they were before they were turned and character and all this other stuff has a lot to do with who they become as a vampire afterwards. Um, and so I think that instead of there being a very blanket statement of all vampires look like this when they're turned, it should really be more nuanced than that because it's like, well, we see that different vampires have different personalities. So of course, and obviously there's there's definitely like worse vampires than other vampires so that wouldn't that mean that there are some vampires that are better than other vampires wouldn't that what about like morally gray ambiguous vampires what about so i think like when we're asking this question and leia even said this too like i think we need to not look at spike and soulless and versus unsold spike and just look at angelus and say okay what what is the show trying to tell us about Angel and Angelus and what's going on with him? So I think that might help clear things up a little bit if you just only focus on him. You know what I mean? Yeah. I also think that like Liam, that might actually like three different types of angels. It's um, so many names. <laughs> I know. Well, Liam, I think because a lot of people are like, oh, I wish that they had given a little bit more in depth to Liam's backstory, which I I agree to some extent. I think that he's very consistent to Angel and Angelus because he struggles with, and all three of them, all three personas of Angel, struggle with addiction in very different ways. And so every time we see Liam, we see that he is lazy. We see that he's a a drunken loser, by lack of a better word. (laughs) Um, And like you see him sloppily falling over tables and like just parting it up and not caring at all. And I think that he had no reason to feel remorse for anything um and then you see angelus and then he is entertaining obsession with just being cruel and then you see angel who is just obsessed and addicted to just feeling remorse and grieving and he just cannot get out of that and i think it's beautiful because each of them shows a different representation of what people have to go through and what people go through. And I think Angel's character just objectively and how David Boreanaz played it is just so interesting. And I just can't get enough of his character. Um, so I think that he makes sense. All of like the different angels make sense to me. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's no secret that we all differ on our opinions of Spike and the character and stuff. I, I would say that I think that Spike is a very three-dimensional character. Um, and I think that I love both Angel and Spike for very many different reasons. Um, and I think that it makes even more sense why they react so differently when they get their souls because they are different people and because they both react like accurately to their character and their personality. Sure. I feel like it makes even more sense to what I was saying before, just kind of saying like, I think that it's the same person just with and without morality and free will pretty much. Yeah. No, I think that's consistent. I am sorry if this was confusing. I don't, I didn't, wasn't saying that I don't think that Spike isn't a three dimensional character. I just personally think that Angel is more so and, and is better written in my opinion. I think that yeah, Liam, I would agree Angelus, with that. and Angel are all so consistent and just are so interesting to me. And they represent them 
And I think that having a character that represents such different types of addiction as the same person is just genius. And so like, I, I'm not at all saying that I um, don't think Spike is three-dimensional character. I think like William Spike and Soul Spike and um, Soul Spike are very interesting as well. I just think that like Ensold and Soul Spike kind of are in more gray meld together type area. I would say that because I I love the fact that Spike is more great character. I think that's what intrigues me to him. Personally, I am more interested in a character like Spike than I am with Angel. I think Angel's amazing and I love him and Buffy together. He's one of my favorite characters. I just personally like Spike more. But I will say Spike was kind of given the short end of the stick because Angel came on the show. They figured out what they wanted to be by episode like five, I think was what Angel was like the self-titled episode or whatever. Um, episode seven. Episode seven. Sorry. Thank you, Sarah. This is why you're, you're my fact checker. <laughs> it's okay. Um, so by episode seven in the first season, they knew where they wanted to go with Angel. He was a soulless. Uh, he was a vampire with a soul. And then it was like, then they started writing season two and they were like, oh, let's make this whole storyline about him. Then by season three, they they knew everything that they wanted to do with Angel because they had already planned on making the show. Then you have all of Angel dedicated to getting to know and dissecting Angel's character. But Angel's character from beginning to end is extremely consistent because they knew what they wanted him for. Like they knew by episode seven of the first season what they wanted him for. Spike got the short end of the stick because when he was first written in, he was only supposed to have five episodes. Then they're like, oh, he's interesting. Let's keep him on. And then it was like, Season three, he only comes back once, and then, like, he's just kind of, like, this weird person coming in and out of the show. And then by season four, it's, like, he's coming in the show, and then you're, like, oh, we really like him on the, the like, show, but, like, we don't really know what he is. We don't know what he want him for. It's, like, they didn't really know what they ever wanted to do with Spike, but they knew they liked having Spike around. So they kept kind of, like, changing things for him and i love spike yeah. this is not me bashing spike i love no. spike yeah he's probably it's either him or buffy are like my favorite characters but i i do think that that's why he comes across as a little inconsistent is because the writers didn't know how they wanted to keep him on the show they just knew they wanted mm -hmm. him so yeah I no that's that totally that's fair why sometimes and especially around like season seven and stuff, they were like, we want to keep him. We we love Spike. But like, how do we keep him on after what we did in season six with him? L like, let's give him a soul. Like, it's just like you can tell there was a bit of a rush. Um, but I yeah. still love him. No, I like 1000% like see what you're saying, Leah. I think that I'm saying the same thing, but I'm more focusing on Angel. And so what I'm saying is, is like. And you guys will see when we get more into the season four Spike and season five Spike. Like, I love his character. Um, I'm just saying that, like, the writers just kind of screwed his character over. And they could have done so many more things because he mm -hmm. is a very interesting character. Mm -hmm. I'm just is. saying that they did a better job with Angel and making him a lot more consistent and detailed. 
Yeah, no, I think those are really good points. And and I totally agree with you, Leah. I, I think it all came down to they didn't really know what to do with Spike and they didn't know how to carry him forward. And mm-hmm. especially after everything that happened in season six, it was like, okay, we want to give him a soul, but then they also didn't want to lose the edge that he did have. And I, and that, that was, they kind of backed themselves into a corner because they wanted to make a difference between sold and unsold Spike, but they couldn't do too much of a drastic one or else people wouldn't like the character as much. So they really were kind of in like a weird position and weird place. Um, and then, you know, season seven, I think could have been more tightly written to kind of give us more opportunity to see Spike wrestling with his soul. I feel like there was like, you know, two episodes, three episodes, and then that was kind of, and then we moved on from there. Um, but yeah, and that's all a later conversation because we're going to definitely be talking about that. But thank you, Leah, for that question. That was seriously very thought provoking. And it's definitely one I think we're going to be talking for the next, you know, few seasons and stuff. But okay, so the last thing is what would Dawn be doing in this episode? And before you guys answer, I really think if there was going to be any episode in the entirety of of like seasons two, three, and four before Dawn gets here, for Dawn to be inserted in, this would have been a fantastic episode for Dawn to have been in. Because imagine if it was Dawn that was sick in the hospital with the flu and Buffy now has an extra motivation to go kill Derek Kinderstad. We don't have to have the whole Celia thing in there. Um, and then I also think that Dawn would definitely have been sneaking into the hospital and helping kids escape. Like, I just think that this would have been a really cool episode to have Dawn in. I didn't even think about that. And the fact that she'd be so much younger. Right. She kind of qualifies a kid. But I also think that like, like, um, I could see Dawn kind of making fun of the fact that like Buffy got sick because she's like, oh my God, <laughs> always gets sick. He finally gets sick and then like ends up catching it from Buffy. Like, I think that'd be so funny. Or like trying to sneak into the hospital, hang out with Xander, who's like, you know, guarding and stuff. And she's like literally. falling asleep. <laughs> I can just imagine her trying to make everything about herself when Buffy is like literally dying. <laughs> like Buffy isn't about that everything. bad. Yeah. I get the flu all the time. <laughs> yeah. I just, I like the more I was thinking about, it, I was like, dang it. Like, I really wish we would have had an episode like this. I could see little glimpses of like tiny Dawn trying to rescue the kids and help them out and, and like, or even trying to help Buffy when she isn't feeling super great and stuff. I think it would have been a really cool episode to see her in, but it's okay. Shoulda, woulda, coulda. Well, I think that's everything. Not as long of an episode this time around, but don't worry because next week <laughs> we have so much to talk about and I only have eyes for you. We have our friend Destiny with us and we've already recorded it and it's just fantastic. We have some really good dialogue and I have a really like a newfound appreciation for that episode. Um, so I'm really excited about it. But you guys can let us know your thoughts on this episode. You can find us on Instagram at Becoming Buffy Podcast. You can email us at Becoming Buffy Podcast at gmail.com. Definitely let us know what you guys think Dawn would be doing in this episode if you think this would have been a great episode for her to be in. Let us know what demon you think is the creepiest in the entire Buffy verse. If Derek Kinderstadt is at the top of your list. Um, and as always, we always want to hear your opinions on the Angel versus Angelus debate because I think that is highly intriguing so anyway let us know and we will see you guys next week for i only have eyes for you 